0: Chapter Eleven of Wives and Daughters. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Wives and Daughters by Elizabeth Gaskell. Chapter Eleven, Making Friendship. Mister Gibson believed that Cynthia Kirkpatrick was to return to England to be present at her mother's wedding, but Missus Kirkpatrick had no such intention. She was not what is commonly called a woman of determination, but somehow what she disliked she avoided, and what she liked she tried to do, or to have. So although in the conversation which she had already led to as to the when and the how she was to be married, she had listened quietly to Mr. Gibson's proposal that Molly and Cynthia should be the two bridesmaids. Still she had felt how disagreeable it would be to her to have her young daughter flashing out her beauty by the side of the faded bride, her mother. And as the further arrangements for the wedding became more definite, she saw further reasons in her own mind for Cynthia's remaining quietly at her school in Boulogne. Mrs. Kirkpatrick had gone to bed that first night of her engagement to Mr. Gibson, fully anticipating a speedy marriage. She looked to it as a release from the thraldom of keeping school—keeping an unprofitable school, with barely pupils enough to pay for house-rent and taxes, food, washing, and the requisite masters. She saw no reason for ever going back to Ashcombe, except to wind up her affairs and to pack up her clothes. She hoped that Mr. Gibson's ardor would be such that he would press on the marriage and urge her never to resume her school drudgery but to relinquish it now and for ever. She even made up a very pretty, very passionate speech for him in her own mind, quite sufficiently strong to prevail upon her, and to overthrow the scruples which she felt she ought to have at telling the parents of her pupils that she did not intend to resume school, and that they must find another place of education for their daughters, in the last week but one of the midsummer holidays it was rather like a douche of cold water on mrs kirkpatrick's plans when the next morning at breakfast lady cumnor began to decide upon the arrangements and duties of the two middle-aged lovers of course you can't give up your school all at once Clare. the wedding can't be before christmas but that will do very well we shall all be down at the towers and it will be a nice amusement for the children to go over to ashcombe and see you married i think i am afraid I don't believe Mr. Gibson will like waiting so long. Men are so impatient under these circumstances." "'Oh, nonsense! Lord Cumnor has recommended you to his tenants, and I'm sure he wouldn't like them to be put to any inconvenience. Mr. Gibson will see that in a moment. He's a man of sense, or else he wouldn't be our family doctor. Now what are you going to do about your little girl? Have you fixed yet?' "'No. Yesterday there seemed so little time, and when one is agitated it is so difficult to think of anything. Cynthia is nearly eighteen, old enough to go out as a governess, if he wishes it, but I don't think he will. He is so generous and kind. Well, I must give you time to settle some of your affairs today. Don't waste it in sentiment you're too old for that. Come to a clear understanding with each other. It'll be for your happiness in the long run so they did come to a clear understanding about one or two things to mrs kirkpatrick's dismay she found that mr gibson had no more idea than lady cumnor of her breaking faith with the parents of her pupils though he really was at a serious loss as to what was to become of molly till she could be under the protection of his new wife at her own home and though his domestic worries teased him more and more every day He was too honorable to think of persuading Mrs. Kirkpatrick to give up school a week sooner than was right for his sake. He did not even perceive how easy the task of persuasion would be. With all her winning wiles she could scarcely lead him to feel impatience for the wedding to take place at Michaelmas. "'I can hardly tell you what a comfort and relief it will be to me, Hyacinth, when you are once my wife, the mistress of my home, poor little Molly's mother and protector, But I wouldn't interfere with your previous engagements for the world. It wouldn't be right." "'Thank you, my own love! How good you are! So many men would think only of their own wishes and interests. I'm sure the parents of my dear pupils will admire you—will be quite surprised at your consideration for their interests." Uh, "'Don't tell them, then. I hate being admired. Why shouldn't you say it is your wish to keep on your school till they've had time to look out for another?' because it isn't said she daring all i long to be making you happy i want to make your home a place of rest and comfort to you and i do so wish to cherish your sweet molly as i hope to do when i come to be her mother i can't take virtue to myself which doesn't belong to me if i have to speak for myself i shall say good people find a school for your daughters by michaelmas for after that time i must go and make the happiness of others I can't bear to think of your long rides in November—coming home wet at night with no one to take care of you. Oh, if you leave it to me, I shall advise the parents to take their daughters away from the care of one whose heart will be absent. Though I couldn't consent to any time before Michaelmas, that wouldn't be fair or right, and I'm sure you wouldn't urge me. You are too good." Well, if you think that they will consider we have acted uprightly by them, let it be Michaelmas with all my heart what does lady cumnor say oh i told her i was afraid you wouldn't like waiting because of your difficulties with your servants and because of molly it would be so desirable to enter on the new relationship with her as soon as possible to be sure so it would poor child i'm afraid the intelligence of my engagement has rather startled her cynthia will feel it deeply too said Mrs. Kirkpatrick, unwilling to let her daughter be behind Mr. Gibson's insensibility and affection. "'We will have her over to the wedding. She and Molly shall be bridesmaids,' said Mr. Gibson, in the unguarded warmth of his heart. This plan did not quite suit Mrs. Kirkpatrick, but she thought it best not to oppose it, until she had a presentable excuse to give, and perhaps also some reason would naturally arise out of future circumstances. So at this time she only smiled and softly pressed the hand she held in hers. It is a question whether Mrs. Kirkpatrick or Molly wished the most for the day to be over which they were to spend together at the towers. Mrs. Kirkpatrick was rather weary of girls as a class. All the trials of her life were connected with girls in some way. She was very young when she first became a governess, and had been worsted in her struggles with her pupils in the first place she ever went to. Her elegance of appearance and manner, and her accomplishments more than her character and acquirements, had rendered it easier for her than for most to obtain good situations, and she had been absolutely petted in some. But still she was constantly encountering naughty or stubborn or over-conscientious or severe judging or curious and observant girls. And again before Cynthia was born she had longed for a boy thinking it possible that if some three or four intervening relations died, he might come to be a baronet. And instead of a son, lo and behold, it was a daughter. Nevertheless, with all her dislike to girls in the abstracts as the plagues of her life and her aversion was not diminished by the fact of her having kept a school for young ladies at Ashcombe, she really meant to be as kind as she could be to her new stepdaughter, whom she remembered principally as a black-haired, sleepy child, in whose eyes she had read admiration of herself. Mrs. Kirkpatrick accepted Mr. Gibson principally because she was tired of the struggle of earning her own livelihood, but she liked him personally. Nay, she even loved him in her torpid way, and she intended to be good to his daughter, though she felt as if it would have been easier for her to have been good to his son. Molly was bracing herself up in her way too. I will be like Harriet. I will think of others. I won't think of myself she kept repeating all the way to the towers. But there was no selfishness in wishing that the day was come to an end, and that she did very heartily. But Mrs. Hamley sent her thither in the carriage, which was to wait and bring her back at night. Mrs. Hamley wanted Molly to make a favourable impression, and she sent for her to come and show herself before she set out. "'Don't put on your silk gown. Your white muslin will look the nicest, my dear.' "'Not my silk. It is quite new. I had it to come here." Still, I think your white muslin suits you the best. Anything but that horrid plain silk, was the thought in Mrs. Hamley's mind, and thanks to her Molly set off for the towers, looking a little quaint, it is true, but thoroughly ladylike—if she was old-fashioned. Her father was to meet her there. But he had been detained, and she had to face Mrs. Kirkpatrick by herself. The recollection of her last day of misery at the towers fresh in her mind as if it had been yesterday. Mrs. Kirkpatrick was as caressing as could be. She held Molly's hand in hers as they sat together in the library, after the first salutations were over. She kept stroking it from time to time, and purring out inarticulate sounds of loving satisfaction as she gazed in the blushing face. "'What eyes! So like your dear father's! How we shall love each other, shan't we, darling, for his sake?" "'I'll try,' said Molly bravely, and then she could not finish her sentence. "'And you've got just the same beautiful black curling hair,' said Mrs. Kirkpatrick, softly lifting one of Molly's curls from off her white temple. "'Papa's hair is growing gray," said Molly. "'Is it? I never see it. I never shall see it. He will always be to me the handsomest of men." Mr. Gibson was really a very handsome man, and Molly was pleased with the compliment. But she could not help saying, "'Still, he will grow old, and his hair will grow grey. I think he will be just as handsome, but it won't be as a young man.' "'Ah, that's just it, love. He'll always be handsome. Some people are. And he is so fond of you, dear.' Molly's color flashed into her face. She did not want an assurance of her own father's love from this strange woman. She could not help being angry. All she could do was to keep silent. You don't know how he speaks of you—his little treasure, as he calls you. I'm almost jealous sometimes. Molly took her hand away, and her heart began to harden. These speeches were so discordant to her. But she set her teeth together and tried to be good. We must make him so happy. I am afraid he has had a great deal to annoy him at home. But we will do away with all that now. You must tell me—seeing the cloud in Molly's eyes—what he likes and dislikes. For of course you will know." Molly's face cleared a little. Of course she did know. She had not watched and loved him so long without believing that she understood him better than any one else though how he had come to like Mrs. Kirkpatrick enough to wish to marry her was an unsolved problem that she unconsciously put aside as inexplicable. Mrs. Kirkpatrick went on. "'All men have their fancies and antipathies even the wisest. I have known some gentlemen annoyed beyond measure by the merest trifles—leaving a door open, or spilling tea in their saucers, or a shawl crookedly put on.' "'Why,' continued she, lowering her voice, I know of a house to which Lord Hollingford will never be asked again because he didn't wipe his shoes on both the mats and the hall. Now you must tell me what your dear father dislikes most in these fanciful ways, and I shall take care to avoid it. You must be my little friend and helper in pleasing him. It will be such a pleasure to me to attend to his slightest fancies. About my dress, too—what colors does he like best? I want to do everything in my power with a view to his approval. Molly was gratified by all this, and began to think that really, after all, perhaps her father had done well for himself, and that if she could help towards his new happiness she ought to do it. So she tried very conscientiously to think over Mr. Gibson's wishes and ways, to ponder over what annoyed him the most in his household. "'I think,' said she, "'papa isn't particular about many things. But I think our not having the dinner quite punctual quite ready for him when he comes in—fidgets him more than anything. You see, he has often had a long ride, and there is another long ride to come, and he has only half an hour, sometimes only a quarter, to eat his dinner in." Thank you, my own love! Punctuality! Yes, it's a great thing in a household. It's what I've had to enforce with my young ladies at Ashcombe. No wonder, poor dear Mr. Gibson has been displeased at his dinner not being ready, and he so hard-worked. Papa doesn't care what he has, if it's only ready. He would take bread and cheese if Cook would only send it in instead of dinner. Bread and cheese? Does Mr. Gibson eat cheese? Yes, he's very fond of it, said Marley innocently. I've known him eat toasted cheese when he has been too tired to fancy anything else. Oh, but, my dear, we must change all that. I shouldn't like to think of your father eating cheese. It's such a strong-smelling, coarse kind of thing. We must get him a cook who can toss him up an omelette or something elegant. Cheese is only fit for the kitchen. Papa's very fond of it, persevered Molly. Oh, but we will cure him of that. I couldn't bear the smell of cheese, and I'm sure he would be sorry to annoy me. Molly was silent. It did not do, she found, to be too minute in telling about her father's likes or dislikes. She had better leave them for Mrs. Kirkpatrick to find out for herself. It was an awkward pause. Each was trying to find something agreeable to say. Molly spoke at length. —Please, I should so like to hear something about Cynthia—your daughter. —Yes, call her Cynthia. It's a pretty name, isn't it? Cynthia Kirkpatrick. Not so pretty, though, is my old name—Hyacinth Clare. People used to say it suited me so well. I must show you an acrostic that a gentleman—he was a lieutenant in the fifty-third—made upon it. Oh! We shall have a great deal to say to each other, I foresee." —But about Cynthia? —Oh, yes, about dear Cynthia. What do you want to know, my dear? —Papa said she was to live with us. When will she come? Oh, is it not sweet of your kind, father? I thought of nothing else but Cynthia's going out as a governess when she had completed her education. She has really been brought up for it, and has had great advantages. But, good dear, Mr. Gibson wouldn't hear of it. He said yesterday that she must come and live with us when she left school." "'When will she leave school?' "'She went for two years. I don't think I must let her leave before next summer. She teaches English as well as learning French.' Next summer she shall come home, and then shan't we be a happy little quartet?" "'I hope so,' said Molly. "'But she is to come to the wedding, isn't she?' She went on timidly, not knowing how far Mrs. Kirkpatrick would like the allusion to her marriage. "'Your father has begged for her to come, but we must think about it a little more before quite fixing it. The journey is a great expense.' "'Is she like you? I do so want to see her. She is very handsome, people say, in the bright-coloured style—perhaps something like what I was. But I like the dark-haired, foreign kind of beauty best—just now." Touching Molly's hair, and looking at her with an expression of sentimental remembrance. "'Does Cynthia—is she very clever and accomplished?' asked Molly a little afraid lest the answer should remove Miss Kirkpatrick at too great a distance from her. "'She ought to be. I have paid ever so much money to have her taught by the best masters. But you will see her before long. And I am afraid we must go now to Lady Cumnor. It has been very charming having you all to myself, but I know Lady Cumnor will be expecting us now, and she was very curious to see you—my future daughter, she calls you.' Molly followed Mrs. Kirkpatrick into the morning-room. Where lady cumnor was sitting a little annoyed because having completed her toilette earlier than usual claire had not been aware by instinct of the fact and so had not brought molly gibson for inspection a quarter of an hour before every small occurrence is an event in the day of a convalescent invalid and a little while ago molly would have met with patronizing appreciation where now she had to encounter criticism of lady cumnor's character as an individual she knew nothing she only knew she was going to see and be seen by a live countess nay more by the countess of hollingford mrs kirkpatrick led her into lady cumnor's presence by the hand and in presenting her said my dear little daughter lady cumnor now clare don't let me have nonsense she is not your daughter yet and may never be i believe that one-third of the engagements i have heard of have never come to marriages Miss Gibson, I am very glad to see you for your father's sake. When I know you better, I hope it will be for your own. Molly very heartily hoped that she might never be known any better by the stern-looking lady who sat so upright in the easy-chair, prepared for lounging, and which therefore gave all the more effect to the stiff attitude. Lady Cumnor luckily took Molly's silence for acquiescent humility, and went on speaking after a further little pause of inspection yes yes i like her looks clare you may make something of her it will be a great advantage to you my dear to have a lady who has trained up several young people of quality always about you just at the time when you were growing up i'll tell you what clare a sudden thought striking her you and she must become better acquainted you know nothing of each other at present you are not to be married till christmas and what could be better than that she should go back with you to ashcombe she would be with you constantly and have the advantage of the companionship of your young people which would be a good thing for an only child it's a capital plan i'm very glad i thought of it now it would be difficult to say which of lady cumnor's two hearers was the most dismayed at the idea which had taken possession of her mrs kirkpatrick had no fancy for being encumbered with a stepdaughter before her time if molly came to be an inmate of her house farewell to many little background economies and a still more serious farewell to many little indulgences that were innocent enough in themselves but which mrs kirkpatrick's former life had caused her to look upon as sins to be concealed the dirty dogs-eared delightful novel from the ashcombe circulating library the leaves of which she turned over with a pair of scissors the lounging-chair which she had for use at her own home straight and upright as she sat now in lady cumnor's presence The dainty morsel savoury and small to which she treated herself for her own solitary supper all these and many others similarly pleasant things would have to be foregone if molly came to be her pupil parlour-boarder or visitor as lady cumnor was planning one two things clare was instinctively resolved upon to be married at michaelmas and not to have molly at ashcombe but she smiled as sweetly as if the plan proposed was the most charming project in the world while all the time her poor brains were beating about in every bush for the reasons or excuses of which she could make use at some future time. Molly, however, saved her all this trouble. It was a question of which the three was the most surprised by the words which burst out of her lips. She did not mean to speak, but her heart was very full, and almost before she was aware of her thought she heard herself saying, "'I don't think it would be nice at all. I mean, my lady, that I should dislike it very much. It would be taking me away from papa just these very last few months. I will like you," she went on, her eyes full of tears, and turning to Mrs. Kirkpatrick she put her hand into her future stepmother's with the prettiest and most trustful action. I will try hard to love you and do all I can to make you happy, but you must not take me away from papa just this very last bit of time that I shall have him." Mrs. Kirkpatrick fondled the hand thus placed in hers, and was grateful to the girl for her outspoken opposition to Lady Cumnor's plan. Clare was, however, exceedingly unwilling to back up Molly by any words of her own until Lady Cumnor had spoken and given the cue. But there was something in Molly's little speech, or in her straightforward manner, that amused instead of irritating Lady Cumnor in her present mood. Perhaps she was tired of the silkiness with which she had been shut up for so many days. She put up her glasses and looked at them both before speaking. Then she said, "'Upon my word, young lady—why, Clare, you've got your work before you. Not but what there is a good deal of truth in what she says. It must be very disagreeable to a girl of her age to have a stepmother coming in between her father and herself—whatever may be the advantages to her in the long run.' Molly almost felt as if she could make a friend of the stiff old countess, for her clearness of sight as to the plan proposed being a trial but she was afraid, in her new-born desire of thinking for others, of Mrs. Kirkpatrick being hurt. She need not have feared as far as outward signs went, for the smile was still on that lady's pretty rosy lips, and the soft fondling of her hand never stopped. Lady Cumnor was more interested in Molly the more she looked at her, and her gaze was pretty steady through her gold-rimmed eye-glasses. She began a sort of catechism—a string of very straightforward questions such as any lady under the rank of countess might have scrupled to ask, but which were not unkindly meant. You are sixteen, are you not? No, I am seventeen. My birthday was three weeks ago. Very much the same thing, I should think. Have you ever been to school? No, never. Miss Eyre has taught me everything I know. (laughs) Miss Eyre was your governess, I suppose. I should not have thought your father could have afforded to keep a governess but of course he must know his own affairs best." "'Certainly, my lady,' replied Molly, a little touchy as to any reflections on her father's wisdom." "'You say, certainly, as if it was a matter of course that every one should know their own affairs best. You are very young, Miss Gibson—very. You'll know better before you come to my age. And I suppose you've been taught music, and the use of globes, and French, and all the usual accomplishments, since you had a governess?' I never heard of such nonsense," she went on, lashing herself up, "'an only daughter! If there had been half a dozen there might have been some sense in it." Molly did not speak, but it was by a strong effort that she kept silence. Mrs. Kirkpatrick fondled her hand more perseveringly than ever, hoping thus to express a sufficient amount of sympathy to prevent her from saying anything injudicious. But the caress had become wearisome to Molly, and only irritated her nerves she took her hand out of Mrs. Kirkpatrick's, with a slight manifestation of impatience. It was perhaps fortunate for the general peace that just at this moment Mr. Gibson was announced. It is odd enough to see how the entrance of a person of the opposite sex into an assemblage of either men or women calms down the little discordances and the disturbance of mood. It was the case now. At Mr. Gibson's entrance my lady took off her glasses and smoothed her brow. Mrs. Kirkpatrick managed to get up a very becoming blush, and as for Molly, her face glowed with delight, and the white teeth and pretty dimples came out like sunlight on a landscape. Of course, after the first greeting, my lady had to have a private interview with her doctor, and Molly and her future stepmother wandered about in the gardens with their arms round each other's waists, or hand in hand, like two babes in the wood. Mrs. Kirkpatrick active in such endearments, Molly passive and feeling within herself very shy and strange, for she had that particular kind of shy modesty which makes any one uncomfortable at receiving caresses from a person towards whom the heart does not go forth with an impulsive welcome. Then came the early dinner, Lady Cumnor having hers in the quiet of her own room, to which she was still a prisoner. Once or twice during the meal the idea crossed Molly's mind that her father disliked his position as a middle-aged lover being made so evident to the men in waiting as it was by mrs kirkpatrick's affectionate speeches and innuendos he tried to banish every tint of pink sentimentalism from the conversation and to confine it to matter of fact and when mrs kirkpatrick would persevere in referring to such things as had a bearing on the future relationship of the parties he insisted upon viewing them in the most matter-of-fact way and this continued even after the men had left the room an old rhyme molly had heard betty use would keep running in her head and making her uneasy. Two is company, three is trumpery. But where could she go in that strange house? What ought she to do? She was roused from this fit of wonder and abstraction by her father, saying, "'What do you think of this plan of Lady Cumnor's? She says she was advising you to have Molly as a visitor at Ashcombe until we are married.' Mrs. Kirkpatrick's countenance fell. If only Molly would be so good as to testify again as she had done before Lady Cumnor. But if the proposal was made by her father, it would come to his daughter from a different quarter than it had done from a strange lady, be she ever so great. Molly did not say anything. She only looked pale and wistful and anxious. Mrs. Kirkpatrick had to speak for herself. It would be a charming plan, only—well, we know why we would rather not have it, don't we, love? And we won't tell papa, for fear of making him vain. No, I think I must leave her with you, dear Mr. Gibson, to have you all to herself for these last few weeks. It would be cruel to take her away." "'But you know, my dear, I told you of the reason why it does not do to have Molly at home just at present,' said Mr. Gibson eagerly. For the more he knew of his future wife, the more he felt it necessary to remember that—' With all her foibles, she would be able to stand between Molly and any such adventures as that which had occurred lately with Mr. Cox, so that one of the good reasons for the step he had taken was always present to him, while it had slipped off the smooth surface of Mrs. Kirkpatrick's mirror-like mind without leaving any impression. She now recalled it on seeing Mr. Gibson's anxious face. But what were Molly's feelings at these last words of her father's? She had been sent from home for some reason kept a secret from her, but told to this strange woman. Was there to be perfect confidence between these two, and she to be ever shut out? Was she, and what concerned her, though how she did not know, to be discussed between them for the future, and she to be kept in the dark? A bitter pang of jealousy made her heart sick. She might as well go to Ashcombe, or anywhere else now. Thinking more of others' happiness than of her own was very fine, but did it not mean giving up her very individuality? quenching all the warm love, the true desires that made her herself. Yet in this deadness lay her only comfort, or so it seemed. Wandering in such mazes she hardly knew how the conversation went on. A third was indeed trumpery, where there was entire confidence between the two who were company from which the other was shut out. She was positively unhappy, and her father did not appear to see it. He was absorbed with his new plans and his new wife that was to be. But he did notice it, and was truly sorry for his little girl. Only he thought that there was a greater chance for the future harmony of the household if he did not lead Molly to define her present feelings by putting them into words. It was his general plan to repress emotion by not showing the sympathy he felt. Yet when he had to leave, he took Molly's hand in his, and held it there in such a different manner to that in which Mrs. Kirkpatrick had done, and his voice softened to his child as he bade her good-bye, and added the words, most unusual to him god bless you child molly had held up all the day bravely she had not shown anger or repugnance or annoyance or regret but when once more by herself in the hamley carriage she burst into a passion of tears and cried her fill till she reached the village of hamley then she tried in vain to smooth her face into smiles and do away with the other signs of her grief She only hoped she could run upstairs to her own room without notice and bathe her eyes in cold water before she was seen, but at the hall door she was caught by the squire and Roger coming in from an after-dinner stroll in the garden, and hospitably anxious to help her to alight. Roger saw the state of things in an instant, and saying, "'My mother has been looking for you to come back for this last hour.' He led the way to the drawing-room. But Mrs. Hamley was not there. The squire had stopped to speak to the coachman about one of the horses. They too were alone. Roger said, "'I'm afraid you've had a very trying day. I've thought of you several times, for I know how awkward these new relations are.' "'Thank you,' said she, her lips trembling and on the point of crying again. "'I did try to remember what you said and to think more of others. But it is so difficult sometimes. You know it is, don't you?' "'Yes.' said he gravely. He was gratified by her simple confession of having borne his words of advice in mind and tried to act up to them. He was but a very young man and he was honestly flattered. Perhaps this led him on to offer more advice, and this time it was evidently mingled with sympathy. He did not want to draw out her confidence, which he felt might very easily be done with such a simple girl, but he wished to help her by giving her a few of the principles on which she had learned to rely. It is difficult," he went on, but by and by you will be so much happier for it. No, I shan't," said Molly, shaking her head. It'll be very dull when I shall have killed myself, as it were, and live only in trying to do and to be as other people like. I don't see any end to it. I might as well have never lived. And as for the happiness you speak of, I shall never be happy again." There was an unconscious depth in what she said. That Roger did not know how to answer at the moment. It was easier to address himself to the assertion of the girl of seventeen that she should never be happy again. Nonsense. Perhaps in ten years' time we'll be looking back on this trial as a very light one. Who knows? I dare say it seems foolish. Perhaps all our earthly trials will appear foolish to us after a while. Perhaps they seem so now to angels. But we are ourselves, you know, and this is now not some time to come a long, long way off, and we had not angels to be comforted by seeing the ends for which everything is sent." She had never spoken so long a sentence to him before, and when she had said it, though she did not take her eyes away from his, as they stood steadily looking at each other, she blushed a little. She could not have told why. Nor did he tell himself why a sudden pleasure came over him as he gazed at her simple, expressive face and for a moment lost the sense of what she was saying, in the sensation of pity for her sad earnestness. In an instant more he was himself again. Only it is pleasant to the wisest, most reasonable youth of one or two-and-twenty to find himself looked up to as a mentor by a girl of seventeen. "'I know. I understand. Yes, it is now we have to do with. Don't let us go into metaphysics.' Molly opened her eyes wide at this. Had she been talking metaphysics without knowing it? One looks forward to a mass of trials which will only have to be encountered one by one, little by little. Oh, here is my mother. She will tell you better than I can." And the tete-a-tete was merged in a trio. Mrs. Hamley lay down. She had not been well all day. She had missed Molly, she said, and now she wanted to hear of all the adventures that had occurred to the girl up at the towers. Molly sat on a stool close to the head of the sofa, and Roger, though at first he took up a book and tried to read that he might be no restraint, soon found his reading all a pretense. It was so interesting to listen to Molly's little narrative. And besides, if he could give her any help in her time of need, was it not his duty to make himself acquainted with all the circumstances of her case? And so they went on during all the remaining time of Molly's stay at Hamley. Mrs. Hamley sympathized, and liked to hear details. As the French say, her sympathy was given en détail, the squire's en gros. He was very sorry for her evident grief, and almost felt guilty, as if he had had a share in bringing it about, by the mention he had made of the possibility of Mr. Gibson's marrying again, when first Molly came on her visit to them. He said to his wife more than once, "'Pon my word! now I wish I'd never spoken those unlucky words that first day at dinner! Do you remember how she took them up? It was like a prophecy of what was to come now, wasn't it? And she looked pale from that day, and I don't think she has ever fairly enjoyed her food since. I must take more care what I say for the future. Not but what Gibson is doing the very best thing, both for himself and her, that he can do. I told him so only yesterday. But I'm very sorry for the little girl, though. I wish I'd never spoken about it, that I do. But it was like a prophecy, wasn't it?" Roger tried hard to find out a reasonable and right method of comfort, for he too in his way was sorry for the girl, who bravely struggled to be cheerful, in spite of her own private grief, for his mother's sake. He felt as if high principle and noble precept ought to perform an immediate work. But they do not, for there is always the unknown quantity of individual experience and feeling which offer a tacit resistance, the amount incalculable by another, to all good counsel and high decree but the bond between the mentor and his telemachus strengthened every day. He endeavored to lead her out of morbid thought into interest in other than personal things, and naturally enough his own objects of interest came readiest to hand. She felt that he did her good. She did not know why or how, but after a talk with him she always fancied that she had got the clue to goodness and peace whatever befell. End of chapter 11 chapter 12 of wives and daughters this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by elizabeth Clett. wives and daughters by elizabeth gaskell chapter 12 preparing for the wedding meanwhile the love affairs between the middle-aged couple were prospering well after a fashion after the fashion that they liked best although it might probably have appeared dull and prosaic to younger people lord cumnor had come down in great glee at the news he had heard from his wife at the towers he too seemed to think he had taken an active part in bringing about the match by only speaking about it his first words on the subject to lady cumnor were i told you so now didn't i say what a good suitable thing this affair between gibson and clare would be i don't know when i've been so much pleased you may despise the trade of matchmaker, my lady but i am very proud of it After this I shall go on looking out for suitable cases among the middle-aged people of my acquaintance. I shan't meddle with young folks—they're so apt to be fanciful—but I've been so successful in this that I do think it's good encouragement to go on." "'Go on? with what?' asked Lady Cumnor dryly. "'Oh, planning! You can't deny that I planned this match.' "'I don't think you are likely to do either much good or harm by planning.' she replied with cool good sense it puts it into people's heads my dear yes if you speak about your plans to them of course it does but in this case you never spoke to either mr gibson or Clare, did you all at once the recollection of how Clare had come upon the passage in lord cumnor's letter flashed on his lady but she did not say anything about it but left her husband to flounder about as best he might no i never spoke to them of course not then you must be strongly mesmeric and your will acted upon theirs if you are to take any credit for any part in the affair continued his pitiless wife i really can't say it's no use looking back to what i said or did i'm very well satisfied with it and that's enough and i mean to show them how much i'm pleased i shall give Clare something towards her rigging out and they shall have a breakfast at Ashcombe manor house I'll write to Preston about it. When did you say they were to be married?' "'I think they'd better wait till Christmas, and I have told them so. It would amuse the children going over to Ashcombe for the wedding, and if it's bad weather during the holidays I'm afraid of their finding it dull at the towers. It's very different if it's a good frost, and they can go out skating and sledging in the park. But these last two years it has been so wet for them, poor dears.' "'And will the other poor dears be content to wait to make a holiday for your grandchildren—to make a Roman holiday? Pope or somebody else has a line of poetry like that—to make a Roman holiday,' he repeated, pleased with his unusual aptitude at quotation. "'It's Byron, and it's nothing to do with the subject in hand. I'm surprised at your lordship's quoting Byron. He was a very immoral poet.' "'I saw him take his oaths in the House of Lords,' said Lord Cumnor apologetically. "'Well, the less said about him, the better,' said Lady Cumnor. "'I have told Clare that she had better not think of being married before Christmas, and it won't do for her to give up her school in a hurry either.' But Clare did not intend to wait till Christmas, and for this once she carried her point against the will of the Countess, and without many words or any open opposition— She had a harder task in setting aside Mr. Gibson's desire to have Cynthia over for the wedding, even if she went back to her school at Boulogne directly after the ceremony. At first she had said that it would be delightful, a charming plan, only she feared that she must give up her own wishes to have her child near her at such a time, on account of the expense of the double journey. But Mr. Gibson, economical as he was in his habitual expenditure, had a really generous heart. He had already shown it in entirely relinquishing his future wife's life interest in the very small property the late Mr. Kirkpatrick had left in favor of Cynthia, while he arranged that she should come to his home as a daughter as soon as she left the school she was at. The life interest was about thirty pounds a year. Now he gave Mrs. Kirkpatrick three five-pound notes, saying that he hoped they would do away with the objections to Cynthia's coming over to the wedding. And at the time Mrs. Kirkpatrick felt as if they would and caught the reflection of his strong wish, and fancied it was her own. If the letter could have been written and the money sent off that day while the reflected glow of affection lasted, Cynthia would have been bridesmaid to her mother. But a hundred little interruptions came in the way of letter-writing, and by the next day maternal love had diminished, and the value affixed to the money had increased. Money had been so much needed, so hardly earned in Mrs. Kirkpatrick's life, while the perhaps necessary separation of mother and child had lessened the amount of affection the former had to bestow. So she persuaded herself afresh that it would be unwise to disturb Cynthia at her studies, to interrupt the fulfilment of her duties just after the semester had begun afresh, and she wrote a letter to Madame Lefevre so well imbued with this persuasion that an answer which was almost an echo of her words was returned, the sense of which being conveyed to Mr. Gibson, who was no great French scholar, settled the vexed question, to his moderate but unfeigned regret. But the fifteen pounds were not returned. Indeed, not merely that sum, but a great part of the hundred which Lord Cumnor had given her for her trousseau was required to pay off debts at Ashcombe, for the school had been anything but flourishing since Mrs. Kirkpatrick had had it. It was really very much to her credit that she preferred clearing herself from debt to purchasing wedding finery but it was one of the few points to be respected in mrs kirkpatrick that she had always been careful in payment to the shops where she dealt it was a little sense of duty cropping out whatever other faults might arise from her superficial and flimsy character she was always uneasy till she was out of debt yet she had no scruple in appropriating her future husband's money to her own use when it was decided that it was not to be employed as he intended What new articles she bought for herself were all such as would make a show, and an impression upon the ladies of Hollingford. She argued with herself that linen and all underclothing would never be seen, while she knew that every gown she had would give rise to much discussion, and would be counted up in the little town. So her stock of underclothing was very small, and scarcely any of it new, but it was made of dainty material, and was finely mended up by her deft fingers, many a night long after her pupils were in bed inwardly resolving all the time she sowed that hereafter someone else should do her plain work indeed many a little circumstance of former subjection to the will of others rose up before her during these quiet hours as an endurance or a suffering never to occur again so apt are people to look forward to a different kind of life from that to which they have been accustomed as being free from care and trial She recollected how, one time during this very summer at the towers, after she was engaged to Mr. Gibson, when she had taken above an hour to arrange her hair in some new mode carefully studied from Mrs. Bradley's fashion-book, after all, when she came down, looking her very best, as she thought, and ready for her lover, Lady Cumnor had sent her back again to her room, just as if she had been a little child, to do her hair over again, and not to make such a figure of fun of herself. Another time she had been sent to change her gown for one in her opinion far less becoming, but which suited Lady Cumnor's taste better. These were little things, but they were late samples of what indifferent shape she had had to endure for many years, and her liking for Mr. Gibson grew in proportion to her sense of the evils from which he was going to serve as a means of escape. After all, that interval of hope and plain sewing, intermixed though it was with tuition, was not disagreeable. Her wedding-dress was secure. Her former pupils at the towers were going to present her with that. They were to dress her from head to foot on the auspicious day. Lord Cumnor, as has been said, had given her a hundred pounds for her trousseau, and had sent Mr. Preston a carte blanche order for the wedding breakfast in the old hall in Ashcombe Manor House. Lady Cumnor, a little put out by the marriage not being deferred till her grandchildren's Christmas holidays, had nevertheless given mrs Kirkpatrick an excellent English-made watch and chain, more clumsy but more serviceable than the little foreign elegance that had hung at her side so long and misled her so often. Her preparations were thus in a very considerable state of forwardness, while mr Gibson had done nothing as yet towards any new arrangement or decoration of his house for his intended bride. He knew he ought to do something, but what? where to begin, when so much was out of order, and he had so little time for superintendence. At length he came to the wise decision of asking one of the Miss Brownings, for old friendship's sake, to take the trouble of preparing what was immediately requisite, and resolved to leave all the more ornamental decorations that he proposed to the taste of his future wife. But before making his request to the Miss Brownings, he had to tell them of his engagement, which had hitherto been kept a secret from the townspeople, who had set down his frequent visits at the towers to the score of the countess's health. He felt how he should have laughed in his sleeve at any middle-aged widower who came to him with a confession of the kind he now had to make to Miss Browning's, and disliked the idea of the necessary call. But it was to be done, so one evening he went in, promiscuous as they called it, and told them his story. At the end of the first chapter, that is, to say, at the end of the story of Mr. Cox's calf-love, Miss Browning held up her hands in surprise. "'To think of Molly, as I have held in long-clothes, coming to have a lover. Well, to be sure. Sister Phoebe—' she was just coming into the room. "'Here's a piece of news. Molly Gibson has got a lover. One may almost say she's had an offer. Mr. Gibson may not one, and she's but sixteen, seventeen. Seventeen, sister,' said Miss Phoebe who piqued herself on knowing all about dear Mr. Gibson's domestic affairs—'17 the 22nd of last June.' "'Well, have it your own way. Seventeen, if you like to call her so,' said Miss Browning impatiently. "'The fact is still the same. She's got a lover, and it seems to me she was in long clothes only yesterday.' "'I'm sure I hope her course of true love will run smooth,' said Miss Phoebe. Now Mr. Gibson came in, for his story was not half told, and he did not want them to run away too far with the idea of Molly's love affair. "'Molly knows nothing about it. I haven't even named it to anyone but you two, and to one other friend. I trounced Coxwell and did my best to keep his attachment, as he calls it, in bones. But I was sadly puzzled what to do about Molly. Miss Eyre was away, and I couldn't leave them in the house together without any older woman.' "'Oh, Mr. Gibson, why did you not send her to us?' broke in Miss Browning. "'We would have done anything in our power for you, for your sake as well as her poor dear mother's.' "'Thank you. I knew you would, but it wouldn't have done to have had her in Hollingford just at the time of Cox's effervescence. "'He's better, no. His appetite has come back with double force after the fasting he thought it right to exhibit. "'He had three helpings of black currant dumpling yesterday.' I am sure you are most liberal, Mr. Gibson—three helpings, and, I dare say, butchers meet in proportion. Oh, I only named it because with such very young men it's generally see-saw between appetite and love, and I thought the third helping a very good sign. But still, you know, what has happened once may happen again.' "'I don't know. Phoebe had an offer of marriage once,' said Miss Browning. "'Hush, sister! It might hurt his feelings to have it spoken about.' "'Nonsense, child! It's five-and-twenty years ago, and his eldest daughter is married herself!' "'I own he has not been constant,' pleaded Miss Phoebe in her tender, piping voice. "'All men are not, like you, Mr. Gibson, faithful to the memory of their first love.' Mr. Gibson winced. Jeanie was his first love, but her name had never been breathed in Hollingford. His wife—good, pretty, sensible, and beloved, as she had been—was not his second— no nor his third love and now he was come to make a confidence about his second marriage well well said he at any rate i thought i must do something to protect molly from such affairs while she was so young and before i had given my sanction miss eyre's little nephew fell ill of scarlet fever ah by the by how careless of me not to inquire how is the poor little fellow worse uh, better it doesn't signify to what i've got to say now The fact was Miss Eyre wouldn't come back to my house for some time, and I cannot leave Molly altogether at Hamley." "'Ah! I see now why there was that sudden visit to Hamley. Upon my word it's quite a romance.' "'I do like hearing of a love affair,' murmured Miss Phoebe. "'Then if you'll let me get on with my story you shall hear of mine,' said Mr. Gibson, quite beyond his patience with their constant interruptions. "'Yours?' said Miss Phoebe faintly. "'Bless us and save us,' said Miss Browning, with less sentiment in her tone. "'What next?' "'My marriage, I hope,' said Mr. Gibson, choosing to take her expression of intense surprise literally. "'And that's what I came to speak to you about.' A little hope darted up in Miss Phoebe's breast. She had often said to her sister in the confidence of curling time—ladies wore curls in those days." That the only man who could ever bring her to think of matrimony was mr gibson but if he ever proposed she should feel bound to accept him for poor dear mary's sake never explaining what exact style of satisfaction she imagined she should give to her dead friend by marrying her late husband phoebe played nervously with the strings of her black silk apron like the caliph in the eastern story a whole lifetime of possibilities passed through her mind in an instant of which possibilities the question of questions was Could she leave her sister? Attend, Phoebe, to the present moment, and listen to what is being said before you distress yourself with a perplexity which will never arise. "'Of course it has been an anxious thing for me to decide who I should ask to be the mistress of my family, the mother of my girl, but I think I've decided rightly at last. The lady I have chosen. "'Tell us at once who she is. There's a good man,' said straightforward Miss Browning. "'Mrs. Kirkpatrick.' said the bridegroom-elect. "'What? The governess at the towers that the Countess makes so much of?' "'Yes, she is much valued by them, and deservedly so. She keeps a school now at Ashcombe, and is accustomed to housekeeping. She has brought up the young ladies at the towers, and has a daughter of her own. Therefore it is probable she will have a kind motherly feeling towards Molly.' "'She's a very elegant-looking woman,' said Miss Phoebe, feeling it incumbent upon her to say something laudatory by way of concealing the thoughts that had just been passing through her mind. "'I've seen her in the carriage riding backwards with the countess. A very pretty woman, I should say.' "'Nonsense, sister,' said Miss Browning. "'What has her elegance or prettiness to do with the affair? Did you ever know a widower marry again for such trifles as those? It's always from a sense of duty of one kind or another, isn't it, Mr. Gibson? They want a housekeeper, or they want a mother for their children, or they think their last wife would have liked it.' perhaps the thought had passed through the elder sister's mind that phoebe might have been chosen for there was a sharp acrimony in her tone not unfamiliar to mr gibson but with which he did not choose to cope at this present moment you must have it your own way miss browning settle my motives for me i don't pretend to be quite clear about them myself but i am clear in wishing heartily to keep my old friends and for them to love my future wife for my sake I don't know any two women in the world except Molly and Mrs. Kirkpatrick. I regard as much as I do you. Besides, I want to ask if you'll let Molly come and stay with you till after my marriage." "'You might have asked us before you asked Madam Hamley,' said Miss Browning, only half mollified. "'We are your old friends, and we were her mother's friends, too, though we are not county folk.' "'That's unjust,' said Mr. Gibson. "'And you know it is.' "'I don't know. You are always with Lord Hollingford, when you can get at him, much more than you ever are with Mr. Goodenough or Mr. Smith, and you are always going over to Hamley." Miss Browning was not one to give in all at once. "'I seek Lord Hollingford, as I should seek such a man, whatever his rank or position might be, usher to a school, carpenter, shoemaker, if it were possible for them to have a similar character of mind developed by similar advantages. Mr. Goodenough is a very clever attorney, with strong local interests, and not a thought beyond well well don't go on arguing it always gives me a headache as phoebe knows i didn't mean what i said that's enough isn't it i'll retract anything sooner than be reasoned with where were we before you began your arguments about dear little molly coming to pay us a visit said miss phoebe i should have asked you at first only cox was so rampant with his love i didn't know what he might do or how troublesome he might be to both molly and you but he has cooled down now absence has had a very tranquilizing effect, and I think Molly may be in the same town with him, without any consequences, beyond a few sighs every time she's brought to his mind by meeting her. And I've got another favor to ask of you. So you see, it would never do for me to argue with you, Miss Browning, when I ought to be a humble suppliant. Something must be done to the house to make it all ready for the future Mrs. Gibson. It wants painting and papering shamefully, and I should think some new furniture. But I'm sure I don't know what.' "'Would you be so very kind as to look over the place and see how far a hundred pounds will go? "'The dining-room must be painted, and we will keep the drawing-room paper for her choice, "'and I've a little spare money for that room for her to lay out. "'But all the rest of the house I'll leave to you, if you'll only be kind enough to help out an old friend.'" This was a commission which exactly gratified Miss Browning's love of power. The disposal of money involved patronage of tradespeople, such as she had exercised in her father's lifetime but had had very little chance of showing since his death her usual good humour was quite restored by this proof of confidence in her taste and economy while miss phoebe's imagination dwelt rather on the pleasure of a visit from molly end of chapter 12 chapter 13 of wives and daughters this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by elizabeth Clett. wives and daughters BY ELIZABETH Gaskell, CHAPTER Thirteen, MOLLY GIBSON'S NEW FRIENDS Time was speeding on. It was now the middle of August. If anything was to be done to the house it must be done at once. Indeed in several ways Mr. Gibson's arrangements with Miss Browning had not been made too soon. The squire had heard that Osborne might probably return home for a few days before going abroad and, though the growing intimacy between Roger and Molly did not alarm him in the least, yet he was possessed by a very hearty panic, lest the heir might take a fancy to the surgeon's daughter, and he was in such a fidget for her to leave the house before Osborne came home that his wife lived in constant terror, lest he should make it too obvious to their visitor. Every young girl of seventeen or so, who was at all thoughtful, is very apt to make a pope out of the first person who presents to her a new or larger system of duty than that by which she has been unconsciously guided hitherto such a pope was roger to molly she looked to his opinion to his authority on almost every subject yet he had only said one or two things in a terse manner which gave them the force of precepts stable guides to her conduct and had shown the natural superiority in wisdom and knowledge which is sure to exist between a highly educated man of no common intelligence and an ignorant girl of seventeen, who yet was well capable of appreciation. Still, although they were drawn together in this very pleasant relationship, each was imagining someone very different for the future owner of their whole heart—their highest and completest love. Roger looked to find a grand woman, his equal, and his empress beautiful in person, serene in wisdom, ready for counsel, as was Ageria. Molly's little wavering maiden fancy dwelt on the unseen Osborne, who was now a troubadour and now a knight, such as he wrote about in one of his own poems. Someone like Osborne, perhaps, rather than Osborne himself, for she shrank from giving a personal form and name to the hero that was to be. The squire was not unwise in wishing her well out of the house before Osborne came home, if he was considering her peace of mind. Yet when she went away from the hall he missed her constantly. It had been so pleasant to have her there fulfilling all the pretty offices of a daughter, cheering the meals, so often tete-a-tete betwixt him and Roger, with her innocent wise questions, her lively interest in their talk, her merry replies to his banter. And Roger missed her too. Sometimes her remarks had probed into his mind and excited him to the deep thought in which he delighted. At other times he had felt himself of real help to her in her hours of need and in making her take an interest in books, which treated of higher things than the continual fiction and poetry which she had hitherto read. He felt something like an affectionate tutor suddenly deprived of his most promising pupil. He wondered how she would go on without him, whether she would be puzzled and disheartened by the books he had lent her to read how she and her stepmother would get along together. She occupied his thoughts a good deal those first few days after she left the hall. Mrs. Hamley regretted her more, and longer than did the other two. She had given her the place of a daughter in her heart, and now she missed the sweet feminine companionship, the playful caresses, the never-ceasing attentions, the very need of sympathy in her sorrows that Molly had shown so openly from time to time, All these things had extremely endeared her to the tender-hearted Mrs. Hamley. Molly too felt the change of atmosphere keenly, and she blamed herself for so feeling even more keenly still. But she could not help having a sense of refinement which had made her appreciate the whole manner of being at the hall. By her dear old friends the Miss Browning she was petted and caressed so much that she became ashamed of noticing the coarser and louder tones in which they spoke, the provincialism of their pronunciation, The absence of interest in things, and their greediness of details about persons. They asked her questions which she was puzzled enough to answer about her future stepmother, her loyalty to her father forbidding her to reply fully and truthfully. She was always glad when they began to make inquiries as to every possible affair at the hall. She had been so happy there. She had liked them all, down to the very dogs, so thoroughly that it was easy work replying she did not mind telling them everything, even to the style of Mrs. Hamley's invalid dress, nor what wine the squire drank at dinner. Indeed, talking about these things helped her to recall the happiest time in her life. But one evening, as they were all sitting together after tea in the little upstairs drawing-room, looking into the high street, Molly discoursing away on the various pleasures of Hamley Hall, and just then telling of all Roger's wisdom in natural science, and some of the curiosities he had shown her, she was suddenly pulled up by this little speech. "'You seem to have seen a great deal of Mr. Roger, Molly,' said Miss Browning, in a way intended to convey a great deal of meaning to her sister and none at all to Molly. But the man recovered of the bite—the dog it was that died. Molly was perfectly aware of Miss Browning's emphatic tone, though at first she was perplexed as to its cause while Miss Phoebe was just then too much absorbed in knitting the heel of her stocking to be fully alive to her sister's nods and winks. "'Yes, he was very kind to me,' said Molly slowly, pondering over Miss Browning's manner and unwilling to say more until she had satisfied herself to what the question tended. "'I dare say you will soon be going to Hamley Hall again. He's not the eldest son, you know, Phoebe don't make my head ache with your eternal eighteen-nineteen, but attend to the conversation. Molly is telling us how much she saw of Mr. Roger, and how kind he was to her. I've always heard he was a very nice young man, my dear. Tell us some more about him." Now, Phoebe, attend! How was he kind to you, Molly?" Oh, he told me what books to read, and one day he made me notice how many bees I saw. Bees, child? What do you mean? either you or he must have been crazy." No, not at all. There are more than two hundred kinds of bees in England, and he wanted me to notice the difference between them and flies. "'Miss Browning, I can't help seeing what you fancy,' said Molly, as red as fire. "'But it is very wrong. It is all a mistake. I won't speak another word about Mr. Roger or Hamley at all, if it puts such silly notions into your head.'" "'Highty-tighty! Here's a young lady to be lecturing her elders. Silly notions indeed. They are in your head, it seems. And let me tell you, Molly, you are too young to let your mind be running on lovers." Molly had been once or twice called saucy and impertinent, and certainly a little sauciness came out now. I never said what the silly notion was, Miss Browning. Did I now, Miss Phoebe? Don't you see, dear Miss Phoebe, it is all her own interpretation, and according to her own fancy this foolish talk about lovers." Molly was flaming with indignation, but she had appealed to the wrong person for justice. Miss Phoebe tried to make peace after the fashion of weak-minded people who would cover over the unpleasant sight of a sore instead of trying to heal it. "'I'm sure I don't know anything about it, my dear. It seems to me that what Dorothy was saying was very true, very true indeed. And I think, love, you misunderstood her. Or perhaps she misunderstood you or I may be misunderstanding it altogether, so we'd better not talk any more about it. What price did you say you were going to give for the drugget in Mr. Gibson's dining-room, sister?" So Miss Browning and Molly went on till evening, each chafed and angry with the other. They wished each other good night, going through the usual forms in the coolest manner possible. Molly went up to her little bedroom, clean and neat as a bedroom could be, with draperies of small delicate patchwork, bed-curtains, window-curtains, and counterpane, a japanned toilette-table, full of little boxes, with a small looking-glass affixed to it, that distorted every face that was so unwise as to look in it. This room had been to the child one of the most dainty and luxurious places ever seen, in comparison with her own bare, white dimity bedroom, and now she was sleeping in it as a guest, and all the quaint adornments she had once peeped at as a great favour, as they were carefully wrapped up in cap-paper, were set out for her use. And yet how little she had deserved this hospitable care! How impertinent she had been! How cross she had felt ever since! She was crying tears of penitence and youthful misery when there came a low tap to the door. Molly opened it, and there stood Miss Browning, in a wonderful erection of a nightcap and scantily attired in a colored calico jacket over her scrimpy and short white petticoat. "'I was afraid you were asleep, child,' said she, coming in and shutting the door. But I wanted to say to you we've got wrong to-day somehow, and I think it was perhaps my doing. It's as well Phoebe shouldn't know, for she thinks me perfect, and when there's only two of us we get along better if one of us thinks the other can do no wrong. But I rather think I was a little cross. We'll not say any more about it, Molly, only we'll go to sleep friends. And friends will always be, child, won't we? Now give me a kiss, and don't cry and swell your eyes up, and put out your candle carefully." I was wrong. It was my fault said molly kissing her fiddlestick ends don't contradict me i say it was my fault and i won't hear another word about it the next day molly went with miss browning to see the changes going on in her father's house to her they were but dismal improvements the faint gray of the dining-room walls which had harmonized well enough with the deep crimson of the marine curtains and which when well cleaned looked thinly coated rather than dirty was now exchanged for a pink salmon color of a very glowing hue and the new curtains were of that pale sea-green just coming into fashion. Very bright and pretty, Miss Browning called it, and in the first renewing of their love Molly could not bear to contradict her. She could only hope that the green and brown drugget would tone down the brightness and prettiness. There was scaffolding here, scaffolding there, and Betty scolding everywhere. Come up now and see your papa's bedroom. He's sleeping upstairs in yours, that everything may be done up afresh in his. Molly could just remember, in faint clear lines of distinctness, the being taken into this very room to bid farewell to her dying mother. She could see the white linen, the white muslin, surrounding the pale wan wistful face with the large longing eyes, yearning for one more touch of the little soft warm child whom she was too feeble to clasp in her arms, already growing numb in death. Many a time when Molly had been in this room since that sad day had she seen in vivid fancy that same wan, wistful face lying on the pillow, the outline of the form beneath the clothes, and the girl had not shrunk from such visions, but rather cherished them, as preserving to her the remembrance of her mother's outward semblance. Her eyes were full of tears as she followed Miss Browning into this room to see it under its new aspect. Nearly everything was changed—the position of the bed and the color of the furniture. There was a grand toilette-table now. With a glass upon it instead of the primitive substitute of the top of a chest of drawers with a mirror above on the wall sloping downwards these latter things had served her mother during her short married life you see we must have it all in order for a lady who has passed so much of her time in the countess's mansion said miss browning who was now quite reconciled to the marriage thanks to the pleasant employment of furnishing that had devolved upon her in consequence Cromer the upholsterer wanted to persuade me to have a sofa and a writing-table. These men will say anything is the fashion if they want to sell an article. I said, no, no, Cromer, bedrooms are for sleeping in, and sitting-rooms are for sitting in. Keep everything to its right purpose, and don't try and delude me into nonsense. Why, my mother would have given us a fine scolding if she had ever caught us in our bedrooms in the daytime. We kept her outdoor things in a closet downstairs there is a very tidy place for washing our hands, which is as much as one wants in the daytime. Stuffing up a bedroom with sofas and tables—I never heard of such a thing. Besides, a hundred pounds won't last forever. I shan't be able to do anything for your room, Molly." "'I'm right down glad of it,' said Molly. "'Nearly everything in it was what Mamma had when she lived with my great-uncle. I wouldn't have had it changed for the world. I am so fond of it.' "'Well, there's no danger of it now the money is run out. By the way, Molly, who's to buy you a bridesmaid's dress?" "'I don't know,' said Molly. "'I suppose I am to be a bridesmaid, but no one has spoken to me about my dress. Then I shall ask your papa. Please don't. He must have to spend a great deal of money just now. Besides, I would rather not be at the wedding if they'll let me stay away." "'Nonsense, child! Why, all the town would be talking of it! You must go, and you must be well-dressed for your father's sake." But Mr. Gibson had thought of Molly's dress, although he had said nothing about it to her. He had commissioned his future wife to get her what was requisite, and presently a very smart dressmaker came over from the county town to try on a dress, which was both so simple and so elegant as at once to charm Molly. When it came home all ready to put on, Molly had a private dressing-up for the Miss Browning's benefit, and she was almost startled when she looked into the glass and saw the improvement in her appearance. "'I wonder if I'm pretty.' thought she. I almost think I am. In this kind of dress I mean, of course. Betty would say, fine feathers make fine birds. When she went downstairs in her bridal attire, with shy blushes presenting herself for inspection, she was greeted with a burst of admiration. Well, upon my word, I shouldn't have known you! Fine feathers, thought Molly, and checked her rising vanity. You are really beautiful, isn't she, sister? said Miss Phoebe. Why, my dear, if you were always dressed you would be prettier than your dear mamma, whom we always reckoned so very personable. You're not a bit like her. You favour your father, and white always sets off a brown complexion." But isn't she beautiful? persevered Miss Phoebe. Well, and if she isn't, Providence made her, and not she herself. Besides, the dressmaker must go shares. What a fine India muslin it is! It'll have cost a pretty penny. Mr. Gibson and Molly drove over to Ashcombe the night before the wedding in the one yellow post-chaise that Hollingford possessed. They were to be Mr. Preston's, or rather my Lord's, guests at the manor-house. The manor-house came up to its name and delighted Molly at first sight. It was built of stone, had many gables and mullioned windows, and was covered over with Virginian creeper and late-blowing roses. Molly did not know Mr. Preston, who stood in the doorway to greet her father. She took standing with him as a young lady at once, and it was the first time she had met with the kind of behaviour, complimentary, half half-flirting, which some men think it necessary to assume with every woman under five-and-twenty. Mr. Preston was very handsome and knew it. He was a fair man, with light brown hair and whiskers, grey, roving, well-shaped eyes, with lashes darker than his hair, and a figure rendered easy and supple by the athletic exercises in which his excellence was famous and which had procured him admission into much higher society than he was otherwise entitled to enter. He was a capital cricketer, was so good a shot that any house desirous of reputation for its bags on the twelfth or the first was glad to have him for a guest. He taught young ladies to play billiards on a wet day, or went in for the game in serious earnest when required. He knew half the private theatrical plays off by heart, and was invaluable in arranging impromptu charades and tableaux. He had his own private reasons for wishing to get up a flirtation with molly just at this time. He had amused himself so much with the widow when she first came to Ashcombe that he fancied that the sight of him standing by her less polished, less handsome, middle-aged husband might be too much of a contrast to be agreeable. Besides, he had really a strong passion for some one else, some one who would be absent, and that passion it was necessary for him to conceal. So that altogether he had resolved, even had the little Gibson girl, as he called her, being less attractive than she was, to devote himself to her for the next sixteen hours. They were taken by their host into a wainscoted parlour where a wood fire crackled and burnt, and the crimson curtains shut out the waning day and the outer chill. Here the table was laid for dinner—snowy table linen, bright silver, clear sparkling glass, wine, and an autumnal dessert on the sideboard. Yet Mr. Preston kept apologizing to Molly for the rudeness of his bachelor home, for the smallness of the room, the great dining-room being already appropriated by his housekeeper in preparation for the morrow's breakfast. And then he rang for a servant to show Molly to her room. She was taken into a most comfortable chamber, a wood fire on the hearth, candles lighted on the toilette table, dark woollen curtains surrounding a snow-white bed, great vases of china standing here and there. "'This is my lady Arriet's room when a ladyship comes to the manor-house with my lord the earl,' said the housemaid, striking out thousands of brilliant sparks by a well-directed blow at a smouldering log. "'Shall I help you to dress, miss? I always helps a ladyship.' Molly, quite aware of the fact that she had but her white muslin gown for the wedding, besides that she had on, dismissed the good woman, and was thankful to be left to herself. "'Dinner,' was it called. Why, it was nearly eight o'clock and preparations for bed seemed a more natural employment than dressing at this hour of night. All the dressing she could manage was the placing of a red damask rose or two in the band of her grey stuff gown, there being a great nosegay of choice autumnal flowers on the toilet table. She did try the effect of another crimson rose in her black hair, just above her ear. It was very pretty, but too coquettish, and so she put it back again. The dark oak panels and wainscoting of the whole house seemed to glow in warm light. There were so many fires in different rooms, in the hall, and even one on the landing of the staircase. Mr. Preston must have heard her step, for he met her in the hall and led her into a small drawing-room, with closed folding-doors on one side, opening into the larger drawing-room as he told her. This room into which she entered reminded her a little of Hamley, yellow satin upholstery of seventy or a hundred years ago, all delicately kept and scrupulously clean. Great Indian cabinets and china jars emitting spicy odors a large blazing fire, before which her father stood in his morning dress, grave and thoughtful, as he had been all day. "'This room is that which Lady Harriet uses when she comes here with her father for a day or two, said Mr. Preston, and Molly tried to save her father by being ready to talk herself. "'Does she often come here?' "'Not often. But I fancy she likes being here when she does. Perhaps she finds it an agreeable change after the more formal life she leads at the Towers.' "'I should think it was a very pleasant house to stay at,' said Molly, remembering the look of warm comfort that pervaded it. But a little to her dismay, Mr. Preston seemed to take it as a compliment to himself. "'I was afraid a young lady like you might perceive all the incongruities of a bachelor's home. I am very much obliged to you, Miss Gibson. In general I live pretty much in the room in which we shall dine, and I have a sort of agent's office in which I keep books and papers, and receive callers on business.' Then they went in to dinner. Molly thought everything that was served was delicious, and cooked to the point of perfection. But they did not seem to satisfy Mr. Preston, who apologized to his guests several times for the bad cooking of this dish, or the omission of a particular sauce to that, always referring to bachelor's housekeeping, bachelor's this, and bachelor's that, till Molly grew quite impatient at the word. Her father's depression, which was still continuing and rendering him very silent, made her uneasy. Yet she wished to conceal it from Mr. Preston, and so she talked away, trying to obviate the sort of personal bearing which their host would give to everything. She did not know when to leave the gentleman, but her father made a sign to her, and she was conducted back to the yellow drawing-room by Mr. Preston, who made many apologies for leaving her there alone. She enjoyed herself extremely, however, feeling at liberty to prowl about and examine all the curiosities the room contained. Among other things was a Louis Cannes cabinet with lovely miniatures and enamel let into the fine woodwork. She carried a candle to it and was looking intently at these faces when her father and Mr. Preston came in. Her father still looked careworn and anxious. He came up and patted her on the back, looked at what she was looking at, and then went off to silence and the fire. Mr. Preston took the candle out of her hand and threw himself into her interests with an air of ready gallantry. That is said to be Mademoiselle de saint cantine a great beauty at the French court. This is Madame du Barry. Do you see any likeness in Mademoiselle de saint quentin to anyone you know?' He had lowered his voice a little as he asked this question. "'No,' said Marley, looking at it again. "'I never saw anyone half so beautiful.' "'But don't you see a likeness—in the eyes, particularly?' he asked again, with some impatience. Molly tried hard to find out her resemblance, and was again unsuccessful. "'It constantly reminds me of—of Miss Kirkpatrick.' "'Does it?' said Molly eagerly. "'Oh, I'm so glad. I've never seen her, so of course I couldn't find out the likeness. You know her then, do you? Please tell me all about her.' He hesitated a moment before speaking. He smiled a little before replying. "'She's very beautiful. But that, of course, is understood when I say that this miniature does not come up to her for beauty." "'And besides—go on, please." "'What do you mean by besides?' "'Oh, I suppose she's very clever and accomplished.' That was not in the least what Molly wanted to ask, but it was difficult to word the vague vastness of her unspoken inquiry. She is clever, naturally. She has picked up accomplishments. But she has such a charm about her. One forgets what she herself is in the halo that surrounds her. You ask me all this, Miss Gibson, and I answer truthfully, or else I should not entertain one young lady with my enthusiastic praises of another. "'I don't see why not,' said Molly. "'Besides, if you wouldn't do it in general, I think you ought to do it in my case. For you perhaps don't know, but she is coming to live with us when she leaves school, and we are very nearly the same age, so it would be almost like having a sister.' She is to live with you, is she?" said Mr. Preston, to whom this intelligence was news. And when is she to leave school? I thought she would surely have been at this wedding but I was told she was not to come. When is she to leave school?" "'I think it is to be at Easter. You know she's at Boulogne, and it's a long journey for her to come alone. Or else papa wished for her to be at the marriage very much indeed. And her mother prevented it—I understand.' No, it wasn't her mother. It was the French schoolmistress, who didn't think it desirable. It comes to pretty much the same thing. And she's to return and live with you after Easter. I believe so. Is she a grave or a merry person? Never very grave, as far as I have seen of her. Sparkling would be the word for her, I think. Do you ever write to her? If you do, pray remember me to her, and tell her how we've been talking about her—you and I. I never write to her said Molly, rather shortly. Tea came in, and after that they all went to bed. Molly heard her father exclaim at the fire in his bedroom, and Mr. Preston's reply. I pique myself on my keen relish for all creature comforts, and also on my power of doing without them, if need be. My lord's woods are ample, and I indulge myself with a fire in my bedroom for nine months in the year. Yet I could travel in Iceland without wincing from the cold. End of chapter 13 Chapter Fourteen of Wives and Daughters. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Wives and Daughters by Elizabeth Gaskell. Chapter Fourteen. Molly finds herself patronized. The wedding went off much as such affairs do. Lord Cumnor and Lady Harriet drove over from the Towers, so the hour for the ceremony was as late as possible. Lord Cumnor came in order to officiate as the bride's father, and was in more open glee than either bride or bridegroom, or any one else. Lady Harriet came as a sort of amateur bridesmaid, to share Molly's duties, as she called it. They went from the manor-house in two carriages to the church in the park, Mr. Preston and Mr. Gibson in one, and Molly, to her dismay, shut up with Lord Cumnor and Lady Harriet in the other. Lady Harriet's gown of white muslin had seen one or two garden-parties, and was not in the freshest order. It had been rather a freak of the young ladies at the last moment. She was very merry, and very much inclined to talk to Molly, by way of finding out what sort of a little personage Clare was to have for her future daughter. She began, "'We mustn't crush this pretty muslin dress of yours. Put it over papa's knee. He doesn't mind it in the least.' "'What, my dear? A white dress?' no to be sure not i rather like it besides going to a wedding who minds anything it would be different if we were going to a funeral molly conscientiously strove to find out the meaning of this speech but before she had done so lady harriet spoke again going to the point as she always piqued herself on doing i dare say it's something of a trial to you this second marriage of your father's but you'll find clare the most amiable of women she always let me have my own way And I've no doubt she'll let you have yours." "'I mean to try and like her,' said Molly, in a low voice, striving hard to keep down the tears that would keep rising to her eyes this morning. "'I've seen very little of her yet.' "'Why, it's the very best thing for you that could have happened, my dear,' said Lord Cumnor. "'You're growing up into a young lady—and a very pretty young lady, too, if you'll allow an old man to say so and what so proper as your father's wife to bring you out and show you off and take you to balls and that kind of thing i always said this match that is going to come off to-day was the most suitable thing i ever knew and it's even a better thing for you than for the people themselves poor child said lady harriet who had caught a sight of marley's troubled face the thought of balls is too much for her just now but you'll like having cynthia kirkpatrick for a companion shan't you dear very much," said Molly, cheering up a little. Do you know her? Oh, I've seen her over and over again when she was a little girl, and once or twice since. She's the prettiest creature that you ever saw, and with eyes that mean mischief if I'm not much mistaken. But Clare kept her spirit under pretty well when she was staying with us, afraid of her being troublesome, I fancy." Before Molly could shape her next question they were at the church and she and Lady Harriet went into a pew near the door to wait for the bride, in whose train they were to proceed to the altar. The Earl drove on alone to fetch her from her own house, not a quarter of a mile distant. It was pleasant to her to be led to the hymeneal altar by a belted Earl, and pleasant to have his daughter as a volunteer bridesmaid. Mrs. Kirkpatrick in this flush of small gratifications, and on the brink of matrimony with a man whom she liked, and who would be bound to support her without any exertion of her own, looked beamingly happy and handsome. A little cloud came over her face at the sight of Mr. Preston. The sweet perpetuity of her smile was rather disturbed as he followed in Mr. Gibson's wake. But his face never changed. He bowed to her gravely and then seemed absorbed in the service. Ten minutes and all was over. The bride and bridegroom were driving together to the manor-house. Mr. Preston was walking thither by a short cut, and Molly was again in the carriage with my lord, rubbing his hands and chuckling, and Lady Harriet, trying to be kind and consolatory, when her silence would have been the best comfort. Molly found out to her dismay that the plan was for her to return with Lord Cumnor and Lady Harriet when they went back to the towers in the evening. In the meantime Lord Cumnor had business to do with Mr. Preston, and after the happy couple had driven off on their week's holiday tour, she was to be left alone with the formidable Lady Harriet. When they were by themselves, after all the others had been thus disposed of, Lady Harriet sat still over the drawing-room fire, holding a screen between it and her face, but gazing intently at Molly for a minute or two. Molly was fully conscious of this prolonged look, and was trying to get up her courage to return the stare, when Lady Harriet suddenly said, "'I like you. You are a wild little creature, and I want to tame you. Come here and sit on this stool by me. What is your name, or what do they call you, as North Country people would express it, Molly Gibson? My real name is Mary Molly is a nice, soft-sounding name. People in the last century weren't afraid of homely names Now we are all so smart and fine. No more Lady Betty's now. I almost wonder they haven't rechristened all the worsted and knitting cotton that bears her name. Fancy Lady Constantia's cotton or Lady Anna Maria's worsted." "'I didn't know there was a Lady Betty's cotton,' said Molly. "'That proves you don't do fancy work. You'll find Clare will set you to it, though. She used to set me at piece after piece—knights kneeling to ladies—impossible flowers. But I must do her the justice to add that when I got tired of them she finished them herself. I wonder how you'll get on together?' "'So do I,' sighed out Molly, under her breath. I used to think I managed her, till one day an uncomfortable suspicion arose that all the time she had been managing me. Still, it's easy work to let oneself be managed, at any rate till one wakens up to the consciousness of the process, and then it may become amusing, if one takes it in that light." "'I should hate to be managed,' said Molly indignantly. "'I'll try and do what she wishes for papa's sake, if she'll only tell me outright. But I should dislike to be trapped into anything.' Now I," said Lady Harriet, am too lazy to avoid traps, and I rather like to remark the cleverness with which they're set. But then, of course, I know that if I choose to exert myself I can break through the wythes of green flax with which they try to bind me. Now perhaps you won't be able." "'I don't quite understand what you mean,' said Molly. "'Oh, well, never mind. I dare say it's as well for you that you shouldn't. The moral of all I have been saying is, be a good girl and suffer yourself to be led, and you'll find your new stepmother the sweetest creature imaginable. You'll get on capitally with her, I make no doubt. How you'll get on with her daughter is another affair, but I dare say very well. Now we'll ring for tea, for I suppose that heavy breakfast is to stand for our lunch." Mr. Preston came into the room just at this time, and Molly was a little surprised at Lady Harriet's cool manner of dismissing him remembering as she did how Mr. Preston had implied his intimacy with her ladyship the evening before at dinner-time. "'I cannot bear that sort of person,' said Lady Harriet, almost before he was out of hearing. "'Giving himself airs of gallantry towards one to whom his simple respect is all his duty. I can talk to one of my father's labourers with pleasure, while with a man like that, underbred fop, I am all over thorns and nettles. What is it the Irish call that style of creature? save some capital word for it, I know. What is it?" "'I don't know. I never heard it,' said Molly, a little ashamed of her ignorance. "'Oh, that shows you've never read Miss Edgeworth's tales, now have you? If you had, you'd have recollected that there was such a word, even if you didn't remember what it was. If you've never read those stories, they'd be just the thing to beguile your solitude—vastly improving and moral, and yet quite sufficiently interesting. I'll lend them to you while you're all alone. I'm not alone. I'm not at home, but on a visit to Miss Browning's." "'Then I'll bring them to you. I know the Miss Browning's. They used to come regularly on the school day to the Towers. Pexy and Flapsy, I used to call them. I like the Miss Browning's. One gets enough of respect from them at any rate, and I've always wanted to see the kind of menage of such people. I'll bring you a whole pile of Miss Edgeworth's stories, my dear." Molly sat quite silent for a minute or two. Then she mustered up courage to speak out what was in her mind. Your Ladyship—the title was the first-fruits of the lesson, as Molly took it, on paying due respect—your Ladyship keeps speaking of the sort of—the class of people to which I belong, as if it was a kind of strange animal you were talking about. Yet you talk so openly to me that—well, go on. I like to hear you—still silence—you think me in your heart a little impertinent. Now don't you," said Lady Harriet, almost kindly. Molly held her peace for two or three moments. Then she lifted her beautiful, honest eyes to Lady Harriet's face, and said, Yes, a little, but I think you a great many other things. We'll leave the other things for the present. Don't you see, little one, I talk after my kind, just as you talk after your kind? I, it's only on the surface with both of us. Why, I dare say some of your good Hollingford ladies talk of the poor people in a manner which they would consider as impertinent in their turn, if they could hear it." But I ought to be more considerate when I remember how often my blood is boiled at the modes of speech and behaviour of one of my aunts, Mama's sister, uh, lady—no, I won't name names—any one who earns his livelihood by any exercise of head or hands, from professional people and rich merchants down to labourers, she calls persons. She would never in her most slip-slop talk accord them even the conventional title of gentlemen, and in the way in which she takes possession of human beings—my woman, my people. But after all, it is only a way of speaking. I ought not to have used it to you. But somehow I separate you from all these Hollingford people." "'But why?' persevered Molly. "'I'm one of them.' "'Yes, you are. But—now don't reprove me again for impertinence. Most of them are so unnatural in their exaggerated respect and admiration when they come up to the towers, and put on so much pretense by way of fine manners, that they only make themselves objects of ridicule. You at least are simple and truthful, and that's why I separate you in my own mind from them, and have talked unconsciously to you as I would—well, now here's another piece of impertinence—as I would to my equal—in rank, I mean, for I don't set myself up in solid things as any better than my neighbours. Here's tea, however come in time to stop me from growing too humble. It was a very pleasant little tea in the fading September twilight. Just as it was ended, in came Mr. Preston again. Lady Harriet, will you allow me the pleasure of showing you some alterations I have made in the flower-garden, in which I have tried to consult your taste, before it grows dark? Thank you, Mr. Preston. I will ride over with Papa some day, and we will see if we approve of them. Mr. Preston's brow flushed but he affected not to perceive Lady Harriet's haughtiness, and turning to Molly he said, "'Will not you come out, Miss Gibson, and see something of the gardens? You haven't been out at all, I think, excepting to church.' Molly did not like the idea of going out for a walk with only Mr. Preston, yet she pined for a little fresh air, would have been glad to see the gardens and look at the manor-house from different aspects, and besides this much as she recoiled from Mr. Preston she felt sorry for him under the repulse he had just received. While she was hesitating and slowly tending towards consent, Lady Harriet spoke. "'I cannot spare Miss Gibson. If she would like to see the place, I will bring her over some day myself.' When he had left the room, Lady Harriet said, "'I dare say it's my own lazy selfishness that has kept you indoors all day against your will. But at any rate you are not to go out walking with that man. I've an instinctive aversion to him—not entirely instinctive, either. It has some foundation, in fact and i desire you don't allow him ever to get intimate with you he's a very clever land-agent and does his duty by papa and i don't choose to be taken up for libel but remember what i say then the carriage came round and after numberless last words from the earl who appeared to have put off every possible direction to the moment when he stood like an awkward mercury balancing himself on the step of the carriage they drove back to the towers would you rather come in and dine with us we should send you home of course Or go home straight?" asked Lady Harriet of Molly. She and her father had both been sleeping till they drew up at the bottom of the flight of steps. "'Tell the truth now and evermore. Truth is generally amusing if it's nothing else.' "'I would rather go back to Miss Browning's at once, please,' said Molly, with a nightmare-like recollection of the last, the only evening she had spent at the towers. Lord Cumnor was standing on the steps waiting to hand his daughter out of the carriage. Lady Harriet stopped to kiss Molly on the forehead, and to say, "'I shall come some day soon, and bring you a load of Miss Edgeworth's tales, and make further acquaintance with Pexy and Flapsy.' "'No, don't please,' said Molly, taking hold of her, to detain her. "'You must not come—indeed you must not.' "'Why not?' "'Because I would rather not—because I think that I ought not to have any one coming to see me who laughs at the friends I am staying with, and calls them names.' Molly's heart beat very fast, but she meant every word that she said. "'My dear little woman,' said Lady Harriet, bending over her and speaking quite gravely, "'I'm very sorry to have called them names—very, very very sorry to have hurt you. If I promise you to be respectful to them in word and in deed, and in very thought if I can—you'll let me then, won't you?' Molly hesitated. "'I'd better go home at once. I shall only say wrong things. And there's Lord Cumnor waiting all this time let him alone he's very well amused hearing all the news of the day from Brown then I shall come under promise so Molly drove off in solitary grandeur and Miss Browning's knocker was loosened on its venerable hinges by the never-ending peal of Lord Cumnor's footman they were full of welcome full of curiosity all through the long day they had been missing their bright young visitor and three or four times in every hour they had been wondering and settling what everybody was doing at that exact minute. What had become of Molly during all the afternoon had been a great perplexity to them, and they were very much oppressed with a sense of the great honour she had received in being allowed to spend so many hours alone with Lady Harriet. They were indeed more excited by this one fact than by all the details of the wedding, most of which they had known beforehand, and talked over with much perseverance during the day. Molly began to feel as if there was some foundation for Lady Harriet's inclination to ridicule the worship paid by the good people of Hollingford to their liege lord, and to wonder with what tokens of reverence they would receive Lady Harriet if she came to pay her promised visit. She had never thought of concealing the probability of the call until this evening, but now she felt as if it would be better not to speak of the chance, as she was not at all sure that the promise will be fulfilled. Before Lady Harriet's call was paid, Molly received another visit. Roger Hamley came riding over one day with a note from his mother, and a wasp's nest as a present from himself. Molly heard his powerful voice come sounding up the little staircase, and he asked if Miss Gibson was at home from the servant-maid at the door, and she was half-amused and half-annoyed as she thought how this call of his would give colour to the Miss Browning's fancies. "'I would rather never be married at all,' thought she, "'than marry an ugly man. And dear good Mr. Roger is really ugly. I don't think one could even call him plain." Yet Miss Brownings, who did not look upon young men as if their natural costume was a helmet and a suit of armor, thought Mr. Roger Hamley a very personable young fellow as he came into the room, his face flushed with exercise, his white teeth showing pleasantly in the courteous bow and smile he gave to all around. He knew the Miss Brownings slightly, and talked pleasantly to them while Molly read Mrs. Hamley's little missive of sympathy and good wishes relating to the wedding. Then he turned to her and though Miss Browning's listened with all their ears, they could not find out anything remarkable either in the words he said or the tone in which they were spoken. "'I've brought you the wasp's nest, I promised you, Miss Gibson. There has been no lack of such things this year. We've taken seventy-four on my father's land alone, and one of the labourers, a poor fellow who ekes out his wages by bee-keeping, has had a sad misfortune. The wasps have turned the bees out of his seven hives, taken possession, and eaten up the honey. What greedy little vermin!" said Miss Browning. Molly saw Roger's eyes twinkle at the misapplication of the word, but though he had a strong sense of humor, it never appeared to diminish his respect for the people who amused him. "'I am sure they deserve fire and brimstone more than the poor dear innocent bees,' said Miss Phoebe. "'And then it seems so ungrateful of mankind who are going to feast on the honey!' She sighed over the thought, as if it was too much for her. While Molly finished reading her note he explained its contents to Miss Browning. "'My brother and I are going with my father to an agricultural meeting at Cannonbury on Thursday, and my mother desired me to say to you how very much obliged she should be if you would spare her Miss Gibson for the day. She was very anxious to ask for the pleasure of your company too, but she really is so poorly that we persuaded her to be content with Miss Gibson, as she wouldn't scruple leaving a young lady to amuse herself, which she would be very unwilling to do if you and your sister were there. I'm sure she's very kind—very! Nothing would have given us more pleasure," said Miss Browning, drawing herself up in gratified dignity. Oh, yes, we quite understand, Mr. Roger, and we fully recognize Mrs. Hamley's kind intention. We will take the will for the deed, as the common people express it. I believe that there was an intermarriage between the Brownings and the Hamleys a generation or two ago." "'I dare say there was,' said Roger. My mother is very delicate, and obliged to humour her health which has made her keep aloof from society." "'Then I may go,' said Molly, sparkling with the idea of seeing her dear Mrs. Hamley again, yet afraid of appearing too desirous of leaving her kind old friends. "'To be sure, my dear, write a pretty note, and tell Mrs. Hamley how much obliged to her we are for thinking of us.' "'I'm afraid I can't wait for a note,' said Roger. "'I must take a message instead, for I have to meet my father at one o'clock, and it's close upon it now.' when he was gone Molly felt so light-hearted at the thoughts of Thursday that she could hardly attend to what the Miss Brownings were saying. One was talking about the pretty muslin gown which Molly had sent to the wash only that morning, and contriving how it could be had back again in time for her to wear. And the other, Miss Phoebe, totally inattentive to her sister's speaking for a wonder, was piping out a separate strain of her own and singing Roger Hamley's praises. "'Such a fine-looking young man, and so courteous and affable! like the young men of our youth now, is he not, sister? And yet they all say Mr. Osborne is the handsomest. What do you think, child?" "'I have never seen Mr. Osborne,' said Molly, blushing and hating herself for doing so. Why was it? She had never seen him, as she said. It was only that her fancy had dwelt on him so much." He was gone. All the gentlemen were gone before the carriage which came to fetch Molly on Thursday reached Hamley Hall. But Molly was almost glad she was so much afraid of being disappointed. Besides she had her dear Mrs. Hamley the more to herself—the quiet sit in the morning-room, talking poetry and romance, the midday saunter into the garden, brilliant with autumnal flowers and glittering dewdrops on the gossamer webs that stretched from scarlet to blue and thence to purple and yellow petals. As they were sitting at lunch a strange man's voice and step were heard in the hall. The door was opened and a young man came in, who could be no other than Osborne. He was beautiful and languid-looking, almost as frail in appearance as his mother, whom he strongly resembled. This seeming delicacy made him appear older than he was. He was dressed to perfection, and yet with easy carelessness. He came up to his mother and stood by her, holding her hand, while his eyes sought Molly, not boldly or impertinently, but as if appraising her critically. "'Yes, I'm back again—bullocks, I find, and not in my line. I only disappointed my father in not being able to appreciate their merits, and I'm afraid I didn't care to learn. And the smell was insufferable on such a hot day." "'My dear boy, don't make apologies to me. Keep them for your father. I am only too glad to have you back. Miss Gibson, this tall fellow is my son Osborne, as I dare say you have guessed. Osborne, Miss Gibson. Now what will you have?' He looked round the table as he sat down. ''Nothing here,'' said he. ''Isn't there some cold game pie? I'll ring for that.'' Molly was trying to reconcile the ideal with the real. The ideal was agile yet powerful, with Greek features and an eagle eye, capable of enduring long fasting, and indifferent as to what he ate. The real was almost effeminate in movement, though not in figure. He had the Greek features, but his blue eyes had a cold, weary expression in them he was dainty in eating and had anything but a homeric appetite however molly's hero was not to eat more than ivanhoe when he was friar tuck's guest and after all with a little alteration she began to think mr osborne hamley might turn out a poetical if not a chivalrous hero he was extremely attentive to his mother which pleased molly and in return mrs hamley seemed charmed with him to such a degree that molly once or twice fancied that mother and son would have been happier in her absence Yet again it struck on the shrewd, if simple, girl that Osborne was mentally squinting at her in the conversation which was directed to his mother. There were little turns and fioriture of speech which Molly could not help feeling were graceful antics of language not common in the simple daily intercourse between mother and son. But it was flattering rather than otherwise to perceive that a very fine young man, who was a poet to boot, should think it worth while to talk on the tightrope for her benefit and before the afternoon was ended, without there having been any direct conversation between Osborne and Molly, she had reinstated him on his throne in her imagination. Indeed, she had almost felt herself disloyal to her dear Mrs. Hamley, when in the first hour after her introduction she had questioned his claims on his mother's idolatry. His beauty came out more and more as he became animated in some discussion with her, and all his attitudes, if a little studied, were graceful in the extreme. Before Molly left, the squire and Roger returned from Canonbury. "'Osborne here,' said the squire, red and panting. "'Why the deuce couldn't you tell us you were coming home? I looked about for you everywhere, just as we were going into the ordinary. I wanted to introduce you to Grantley and Fox and Lord Forest, men from the other side of the county, whom you ought to know. And Roger there Mister above half his dinner hunting about for you. And all the time you'd stole away and were sitting quietly here with the women. I wish you'd let me know the next time you make off, "'I've lost half my pleasure in looking at as fine a lot of cattle as I ever saw, "'with thinking that you might be having one of your old attacks of faintness. "'I should have had one, I think, if I'd stayed longer in that atmosphere. "'But I am sorry if I've caused you anxiety.' "'Well, well,' said the squire, somewhat mollified. "'And Roger, too. There I've been sending him here and sending him there all the afternoon.' "'I didn't mind it, sir. I was only sorry you were so uneasy. "'I thought Osborne had gone home.' for I knew it wasn't much in his way," said Roger. Molly intercepted a glance between the two brothers—a look of true confidence and love which suddenly made her like them both under the aspect of relationship, new to her observation. Roger came up to her and sat down by her. "'Well, and how are you getting on with Huber? Don't you find him very interesting?' "'I'm afraid,' said Molly penitently, "'I haven't read much. Miss Browning's like me to talk. And, besides, there is so much to do at home before papa comes back, and Miss Browning doesn't like me to go without her. I know it sounds nothing, but it does take up a great deal of time. When is your father coming back? Next Tuesday, I believe. He cannot stay long away." "'I shall ride over and pay my respects to Mrs. Gibson,' said he. "'I shall come as soon as I may. Your father has been a very kind friend to me ever since I was a boy. And when I come I shall expect my pupil to have been very diligent," he concluded, smiling his kind pleasant smile at idle Molly. Then the carriage came round, and she had the long solitary drive back to Miss Browning's. It was dark out of doors when she got there, but Miss Phoebe was standing on the stairs with a lighted candle in her hand, peering into the darkness to see Molly come in. "'Oh, Molly! I thought you'd never come back! Such a piece of news! Sister has gone to bed. She's had a headache with the excitement, I think, but she says it's new bread. Come upstairs softly, my dear, and I'll tell you what it is. Who do you think has been here, drinking tea with us two in the most condescending manner?" Lady Harriet," said Molly, suddenly enlightened by the word condescending. Yes! Why, how did you guess it? But after all her call at any rate in the first instance was upon you. Oh dear Molly, if you're not in a hurry to go to bed, let me sit down quietly with you and tell you all about it for my heart jumps into my mouth still when I think of how I was caught. She, that is her ladyship, left the carriage at the George and took her feet to go shopping, just as you or I may have done many a time in our lives. And sister was taking her forty winks, and I was sitting with my gown up above my knees, and my feet on the fender, pulling out my grandmother's lace which I had been washing. The worst has yet to be told. I'd taken off my cap, for I thought it was getting dusk and no one would come, and there was I in my black silk skull-cap, when Nancy put her head in and whispered, There's a lady downstairs, a real grand one by her talk. And in there came my lady Harriet, so sweet and pretty in her ways, it was some time before I remembered I never had a cap on. Sister never wakened, or never roused up, so to say. She says she thought it was Nancy bringing in the tea when she heard someone moving, for her ladyship, as soon as she saw the state of the case, came and knelt down on the rug by me, and begged my pardon so prettily for having followed Nancy upstairs without waiting for permission. And was so taken by my old lace and wanted to know how I washed it. And where were you? And when you'd be back? And when the happy couple would be back?" Till Sister wakened. She's always a little bit put out, you know, when she first wakens from her afternoon nap. And without turning her head to see who it was, she said quite sharp, "'Buzz, buzz, buzz! When will you learn that whispering is more fidgeting than talking out loud? I've not been able to sleep at all for the chapter you and Nancy have been keeping up all this time.' You know that was a little fancy of Sister's for she had been snoring away as naturally as could be. So I went to her, and leant over her, and said in a low voice, "'Sister, it's her ladyship and me that has been conversing. "'Ladyship here, ladyship there, have you lost your wits, Phoebe, that you talk such nonsense, and in your skull-cap too?' By this time she was sitting up, and looking round her, she saw Lady Harriet in her velvets and silks, sitting on our rug, smiling, her bonnet off, and her pretty hair all bright with the blaze of the fire. My word! Sister was up on her feet directly, and she dropped her curtsey and made her excuses for sleeping as fast as might be. Well, I went off to put on my best cap, for sister might well say I was out of my wits to go on chatting to an earl's daughter in an old black silk skull-cap. Black silk, too! When, if I'd only known she was coming, I might have put on my new brown silk one, lying idle in my top drawer. And when I came back, sister was ordering tea for her ladyship, our tea, I mean. So I took my turn at talk, and Sister slipped out to put on her Sunday silk. But I don't think we were quite so much as our ease with her ladyship when I sat pulling my lace and my skull-cap. And she was quite struck with our tea, and asked where we got it, for she had never tasted anything like it before. And I told her we gave only three shillings and fourpence a pound for it at Johnson's. Sister says I ought to have told you the price of our company tea, which is five shillings a pound. Only that was not we were drinking, for as ill luck would have had it, we've none of it in the house." And she said she would send us some of hers all the way from Russia or Prussia or some out-of-the-way place, and we were to compare and see which we liked best, and if we liked hers best she could get it for us at three shillings a pound. And she left her love for you, and though she was going away, you were not to forget her. Sister thought such a message would set you up too much, and told me she would not be chargeable for the giving it you. But I said a message is a message, and it's on molly's own shoulders if she set up by it. Let us show an example of humility, sister, though we have been sitting cheek-by-jowl in such company. So sister humphed and said she'd had a headache, and went to bed. And now you may tell me your news, my dear. So Molly told all her small events, which, interesting as they might have been at other times to the gossip-loving and sympathetic Miss Phoebe, were rather pale in the stronger light reflected from the visit of an Earl's daughter. End of chapter 14 Chapter fifteen of Wives and Daughters. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Wives and Daughters by Elizabeth Gaskell. Chapter fifteen. The New Mamma. On Tuesday afternoon, molly returned home, to the home which was already strange, and what Warwickshire people would call unked to her. New paint, new paper, new colours. Grim servants dressed in their best and objecting to every change, from their master's marriage to the new oilcloth in the hall, which tripped him up and threw him down and was cold to the feet and smelt just abominable. All these complaints Molly had to listen to, and it was not a cheerful preparation for the reception which she already felt to be so formidable. The sound of their carriage wheels was heard at last, and Molly went to the front door to meet them. Her father got out first and took her hand and held it while he helped his bride to alight. Then he kissed her fondly and passed her on to his wife. But her veil was so securely and becomingly fastened down that it was some time before Mrs. Gibson could get her lips clear to greet her new daughter. Then there was luggage to be seen about and both the travellers were occupied in this while Molly stood by trembling with excitement, unable to help, and only conscious of betty's rather cross looks as heavy box after heavy box jammed up the passage molly my dear show your mamma to her room mr gibson had hesitated because the question of the name by which molly was to call her new relation had never occurred to him before the color flashed into molly's face was she to call her mamma the name long appropriated in her mind to some one else, to her own dead mother. The rebellious heart rose against it, but she said nothing. She led the way upstairs, Mrs. Gibson turning round from time to time with some fresh direction as to which bag or trunk she needed most. She hardly spoke to Molly till they were both in the newly furnished bedroom, where a small fire had been lighted by Molly's orders. Now, my love, we can embrace each other in peace. Oh dear, how tired I am!" after the embrace had been accomplished. My spirits are so easily affected with fatigue, but your dear papa has been kindness itself. Dear, what an old-fashioned bed! and what a—but it doesn't signify. By-and-by we'll renovate the house, won't we, my dear? And you'll be my little maid to-night and help me to arrange a few things, for I'm just worn out with the day's journey." I have ordered a sort of tea-dinner to be ready for you," said Molly. "'Shall I go and tell them to send it in?' "'I am not sure if I can go down again to-night. It would be very comfortable to have a little table brought in here, and sit in my dressing-gown by this cheerful fire. But to be sure, there's your dear papa. I really don't think he would eat anything if I were not there. One must not think about oneself, you know.' "'Yes, I'll come down in a quarter of an hour.' But Mr. Gibson had found a note awaiting him, with an immediate summons to an old patient, dangerously ill, and snatching a mouthful of food while his horse was being saddled, he had to resume at once his old habits of attention to his profession above everything. As soon as Mrs. Gibson found that he was not likely to miss her presence—he had eaten a very tolerable lunch of bread and cold meat in solitude, so her fears about his appetite in her absence were not well founded—she desired to have her meal upstairs in her own room and poor molly not daring to tell the servants of this whim had to carry up first a table which however small was too heavy for her and afterwards all the choice portions of the meal which she had taken great pains to arrange on the table as she had seen such things done at hamley intermixed with fruit and flowers that had that morning been sent in from various great houses where mr gibson was respected and valued how pretty molly had thought her handiwork an hour or two before how dreary it seemed As at last released from Mrs. Gibson's conversation, she sat down in solitude to cold tea and the drumsticks of the chicken. No one to look at her preparations and admire her deft-handedness and taste. She had thought that her father would be gratified by it, and then he had never seen it. She had meant her cares as an offering of good will to her stepmother, who even now was ringing her bell to have the tray taken away, and Miss Gibson summoned to her bedroom. Molly hastily finished her meal and went upstairs again. "'I feel so lonely, darling, in this strange house. Do come and be with me and help me to unpack. I think your dear papa might have put off his visit to Mr. Craven Smith for just this one evening.' "'Mr. Craven Smith couldn't put off his dying,' said Molly bluntly. "'You droll girl,' said Mrs. Gibson with a faint laugh. "'But if this Mr. Smith is dying, as you say, What's the use of your father's going off to him in such a hurry? Does he expect any legacy, or anything of that kind?" Molly bit her lips to prevent herself from saying something disagreeable. She only answered, "'I don't quite know that he is dying. The man said so, and papa can sometimes do something to make the last struggle easier. At any rate, it's always a comfort to the family to have him.' "'What a dreary knowledge of death you have learned for a girl of your age! Really if I had heard all those details of your father's profession, I doubt if I could have brought myself to have him He doesn't make the illness or the death. He does his best against them I call it a very fine thing to think of what he does or tries to do And you will think so too when you see how he is watched for and how people welcome him Well, don't let us talk any more of such gloomy things tonight. I think I shall go to bed at once. I am so tired if you will only sit by me till I get sleepy, darling. If you will talk to me, the sound of your voice will soon send me off." Molly got a book and read her stepmother to sleep, preferring that to the harder task of keeping up a continual murmur of speech. Then she stole down and went into the dining-room, where the fire was gone out, purposely neglected by the servants to mark their displeasure at their new mistress's having had her tea in her own room. Molly managed to light it, however, before her father came home, and collected and rearranged some comfortable food for him. Then she knelt down again on the hearth-rug, gazing into the fire in a dreamy reverie, which had enough of sadness about it to cause the tears to drop unnoticed from her eyes. But she jumped up and shook herself into brightness at the sound of her father's step. "'How is Mr. Craven Smith?' said she. "'Dead. He just recognised me.' He was one of my first patients on coming to Hollingford. Mr. Gibson sat down in the armchair made ready for him, and warmed his hands at the fire, seeming neither to need food nor talk, as he went over a train of recollections. Then he roused himself from his sadness, and looking round the room, he said briskly enough, "'And where's the new mamma? She was tired and went to bed early. "'Oh, Papa, must I call her mamma? "'I should like it.' replied he, with a slight contraction of the brows. Molly was silent. She put a cup of tea near him. He stirred it and sipped it, and then he recurred to the subject. "'Why shouldn't you call her mamma? I'm sure she means to do the duty of a mother to you. We all may make mistakes, and her ways may not be quite at all once our ways, but at any rate it'll start with a family bond between us.' What would Roger say was right?' That was the question that rose to Molly's mind. She had always spoken of her father's new wife as Mrs. Gibson, and had once burst out at Miss Browning's with a protestation that she would never call her mamma. She did not feel drawn to her new relation by their intercourse that evening. She kept silence, though she knew her father was expecting an answer. At last he gave up his expectation and turned to another subject, told about their journey, questioned her as to the Hamleys, the Brownings, Lady Harriet, and the afternoon they had passed together at the manor-house. But there was a certain hardness and constraint in his manner, and in hers a heaviness and absence of mind. All at once she said, "'Papa, I will call her mamma." He took her hand and grasped it tight, but for an instant or two he did not speak. Then he said, "'You won't be sorry for it, Molly, when you come to lie as poor Craven Smith did to-night.' For some time the murmurs and grumblings of the two elder servants were confined to Molly's ears. Then they spread to her father's, who, to Molly's dismay, made summary work with them. "'You don't like Mrs. Gibson's ringing her bell so often, don't you? You've been spoilt, I'm afraid. But if you don't conform to my wife's desires, you'll have the remedy in your own hands, you know.' What servant ever resisted the temptation to give warning after such a speech as that— Betty told Molly she was going to leave, in as indifferent a manner as she could possibly assume towards the girl whom she had tended and been about for the last sixteen years. Molly had hitherto considered her former nurse as a fixture in the house. She would almost as soon have thought of her father's proposing to sever the relationship between them, and here was Betty coolly talking over whether her next place should be in town or country. But a great deal of this was assumed hardness. In a week or two Betty was in floods of tears at the prospect of leaving her nursling, and would fain have stayed and answered all the bells in the house once every quarter of an hour. Even Mr. Gibson's masculine heart was touched by the sorrow of the old servant, which made itself obvious to him every time he came across her by her broken voice and her swollen eyes. One day he said to Molly, "'I wish you'd ask your mamma if Betty might not stay, if she made a proper apology and all that sort of thing.' "'I don't much think it will be of any use,' said Molly, in a mournful voice. "'I know she is writing, or has written about some under-housemaid at the Towers. "'Well, all I want is peace and a decent quantity of cheerfulness when I come home. I see enough of tears at other people's houses. "'After all, Betty has been with us sixteen years—a sort of service of the antique world. "'But the woman may be happier elsewhere. "'Do as you like about asking Mamma." Only if she agrees I shall be quite willing." So Molly tried her hand at making a request to that effect to Mrs. Gibson. Her instinct told her she would be unsuccessful, but surely favor was never refused in so soft a tone. "'My dear girl, I should never have thought of sending an old servant away, one who has had the charge of you from your birth, or nearly so. I could not have had the heart to do it. She might have stayed forever for me, if she had only attended to all my wishes and I am not unreasonable, am I? But you see, she complained, and when your dear papa spoke to her, she gave warning, and it is quite against my principles ever to take an apology from a servant who has given warning." "'She is so sorry,' pleaded Molly. She says she will do anything you wish, and attend to all your orders, if she may only stay." "'But, sweet one, you seem to forget that I cannot go against my principles, however much I may be sorry for Betty. She should not have given way to ill-temper. As I said before, although I never liked her, and considered her a most inefficient servant, thoroughly spoilt by having had no mistress for so long, I should have borne with her—at least I think I should—as long as I could. Now I have all but engaged Maria, who is under housemaid at the towers, so don't let me hear any more of Betty's sorrow, or anybody else's sorrow, for I'm sure, what with your dear papa's sad stories and other things, I'm getting quite low." Molly was silent for a moment or two. "'Have you quite engaged, Mariah?' asked she. "'No. I said, all but engaged. Sometimes one would think you did not hear things, Molly,' replied Mrs. Gibson, petulantly. "'Mariah is living in a place where they don't give her as much wages as she deserves. Perhaps they can't afford it, poor things. I'm always sorry for poverty, and would never speak hardly of those who are not rich but I have offered her two pounds more than she gets at present, so I think she'll leave. At any rate, if they increase her wages, I shall increase my offer in proportion, so I think I'm sure to get her. Such a genteel girl! Always brings in a letter on a salver." "'Poor Betty,' said Molly softly. "'Poor old soul! I hope she'll profit by the lesson, I'm sure,' sighed out Mrs. Gibson. "'But it's a pity we hadn't Mariah before the county families began to call.' Mrs. Gibson had been highly gratified by the circumstance of so many calls from county families. Her husband was much respected, and many ladies from various halls, courts, and houses, who had profited by his services towards themselves and their families, thought it right to pay his new wife the attention of a call when they drove into Hollingford to shop. The state of expectation into which these calls threw Mrs. Gibson rather diminished Mr. Gibson's domestic comfort. It was awkward to be carrying hot, savoury-smelling dishes from the kitchen to the dining-room at the very time when high-born ladies, with noses of aristocratic refinement, might be calling. Still more awkward was the accident which happened in consequence of clumsy Betty's haste to open the front door to a lofty footman's rantan, which caused her to set down the basket containing the dirty plates right in his mistress's way, as she stepped gingerly through the comparative darkness of the hall, and then the young men, leaving the dining-room quietly enough, but bursting with long repressed giggle, or no longer restraining their tendency to practical joking, no matter who might be in the passage when they made their exit. The remedy proposed by Mrs. Gibson for all these distressing grievances was a late dinner. The luncheon for the young men, as she observed to her husband, might be sent into the surgery. A few elegant cold trifles for herself and Molly would not scent the house, and she would always take care to have some little dainty ready for him. He acceded but unwillingly, for it was an innovation on the habits of a lifetime, and he felt as if he should never be able to arrange his rounds aright with this new-fangled notion of a six-o'clock dinner. "'Don't get any dainties for me, my dear. Bread and cheese is the chief of my diet, like it was that of the old woman's.' "'I know nothing of your old woman,' replied his wife. "'But really I cannot allow cheese to come beyond the kitchen.' "'Then I'll eat it there,' said he. It's close to the stable-yard, and if I come in a hurry I can get it in a moment." Really, Mr. Gibson, it is astonishing to compare your appearance and manners with your tastes. You look such a gentleman, as dear Lady Cumnor used to say. Then the cook left, also an old servant, though not so old a one as Betty. The cook did not like the trouble of late dinners, and being a Methodist she objected on religious grounds to trying any of Mrs. Gibson's new recipes for French dishes. It was not scriptural, she said. There was a deal of mention of food in the Bible, but it was of sheep ready-dressed which meant mutton, and of wine and of bread of milk, and figs and raisins, of fatted calves, a good well-browned fillet of veal, and such like. But it always had gone against her conscience to cook swine-flesh and make raised pork-pies, and now if she was to be set to cook heathen dishes after the fashion of the Papists, she'd sooner give it all up together. So the cook followed in Betty's track, and Mr. Gibson had to satisfy his healthy English appetite on badly made omelettes, risoles, vol-au-vent, croquet, and tembal, never being exactly sure what he was eating. He had made up his mind before his marriage to yield in trifles and be firm in greater things. But the differences of opinion about trifles arose every day, and were perhaps more annoying than if they had related to things of more consequence. Molly knew her father's looks as well as she knew her alphabet. His wife did not, and being an unperceptive person, except when her own interests were dependent upon another person's humour, never found out how he was worried by all the small daily concessions which he made to her will or her whims. He never allowed himself to put any regret into shape, even in his own mind. He repeatedly reminded himself of his wife's good qualities, and comforted himself by thinking they should work together better as time rolled on but he was very angry at a bachelor great-uncle of mr cox's who after taking no notice of his red-headed nephew for years suddenly sent for him after the old man had partially recovered from a serious attack of illness and appointed him as heir on condition that his great-nephew remained with him during the rest of his life This had happened almost directly after Mr. and Mrs. Gibson's return from their wedding journey, and once or twice since that time Mr. Gibson had found himself wondering why the deuce old Benson could not have made up his mind sooner, and so have rid his house of the unwelcome presence of the young lover. To do Mr. Cox justice, in the very last conversation he had as a pupil with Mr. Gibson, he said, with hesitating awkwardness, that perhaps the new circumstances in which he should be placed might make some difference with regard to Mr. Gibson's opinion on—not at all said mr gibson quickly you are both too young to know your own minds and if my daughter was silly enough to be in love she should never have to calculate her happiness on the chances of an old man's death i dare say he'll disinherit you after all he may do and then he'd be worse off than ever no go away and forget all this nonsense and when you've done come back and see us so mr cox went away with an oath of unalterable faithfulness in his heart and Mr. Gibson had unwillingly to fulfil an old promise made to a gentleman farmer in the neighbourhood a year or two before, and to take the second son of Mr. Brown in young Mr. Cox's place. He was to be the last of the race of pupils, and as he was rather more than a year younger than Molly, Mr. Gibson trusted that there would be no repetition of the Cox romance. End of chapter 15 chapter 16 of wives and daughters this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by elizabeth Klett. wives and daughters by elizabeth gaskell chapter 16 the bride at home among the county people as mrs gibson termed them who called upon her as a bride were the two young mr hamleys The squire, their father, had done his congratulations as far as he ever intended to do them, to Mr. Gibson himself when he came to the hall. But Mrs. Hamley, unable to go and pay visits herself, anxious to show attention to her kind doctor's new wife, and with perhaps a little sympathetic curiosity as to how Molly and her stepmother got on together, made her sons ride over to Hollingford with her cards and apologies. They came into the newly furnished drawing-room looking bright and fresh from their ride. Osborne first, as usual, perfectly dressed for the occasion, and with the sort of fine manner which sat so well upon him. Roger, looking like a strong-built, cheerful, intelligent country-farmer, followed in his brother's train. Mrs. Gibson was dressed for receiving callers and made the effect she always intended to produce, of a very pretty woman, no longer in her first youth, but with such soft manners and such a caressing voice, that people forgot to wonder what her real age might be. Molly was better dressed than formerly, her stepmother saw after that. She disliked anything old or shabby, or out of taste about her. It hurt her eye, and she had already fidgeted Molly into a new amount of care about the manner in which she put on her clothes, arranged her hair, and was gloved and shod. Mrs. Gibson had tried to put her through a course of rosemary washes and creams in order to improve her tanned complexion. But about that Molly was either forgetful or rebellious, and Mrs. Gibson could not well come up to the girl's bedroom every night and see that she had daubed her face and neck over with the cosmetics so carefully provided for her. Still her appearance was extremely improved, even to Osborne's critical eye. Roger sought rather to discover in her looks and expression whether she was happy or not. His mother had especially charged him to note all these signs. Osborne and Mrs. Gibson made themselves agreeable to each other according to the approved fashion when a young man calls on a middle-aged bride. They talked of the Shakespeare and musical glasses of the day, each vying with the other in their knowledge of London topics. Molly heard fragments of their conversation in the pauses of silence between Roger and herself. Her hero was coming out in quite a new character. No longer literary or poetical or romantic or critical, he was now full of the last new play the singers at the opera. He had the advantage over Mrs. Gibson, who in fact only spoke of these things from hearsay, from listening to talk at the towers, while Osborne had run up from Cambridge two or three times to hear this or to see that wonder of the season. But she had the advantage over him in greater boldness of invention to eke out her facts, and besides she had more skill in the choice and arrangement of her words so as to make it appear as if the opinions that were in reality quotations were formed by herself from actual experience or personal observation. Such as, in speaking of the mannerisms of a famous Italian singer, she would ask, Did you observe her constant trick of heaving her shoulders and clasping her hands together before she took a high note? Which was so said as to imply that Mrs. Gibson herself had noticed this trick. Molly, who had a pretty good idea by this time of how her stepmother had passed the last year of her life, listened with no small bewilderment to this conversation, but at length decided that she must misunderstand what they were saying, as she could not gather up the missing links for the necessity of replying to Roger's questions and remarks. Osborne was not the same Osborne he was when with his mother at the hall. Roger saw Molly glancing at his brother. "'You think my brother looking ill?' said he, lowering his voice. "'No, not exactly.' "'He is not well. Both my father and I are anxious about him. That run on the continent did him harm instead of good, and his disappointment at the examination has told upon him, I'm afraid.' "'I was not thinking he looked ill, only changed somehow.' "'He says he must go back to Cambridge soon. Possibly it may do him good, and I shall be off next week.' This is a farewell visit to you, as well as one of congratulation to Mrs. Gibson." "'Your mother will feel you're both going away, won't she? But of course young men will always have to live away from home.' "'Yes,' he replied. "'Still, she feels it a good deal, and I'm not satisfied about her health either. You will go out and see her sometimes, will you? She is very fond of you.' "'If I may,' said Molly, unconsciously glancing at her stepmother. She had an uncomfortable instinct that, in spite of Mrs. Gibson's own perpetual flow of words, she could and did hear everything that fell from Molly's lips. "'Do you want any more books?' said he. "'If you do, make a list out and send it to my mother before I leave next Tuesday. After I am gone there will be no one to go into the library and pick them out.' As soon as they had left Mrs. Gibson began her usual comments on the departed visitors. I do like that Osborne Hamley. What a nice fellow he is. Somehow I always do like eldest sons. He will have the estate, won't he? I shall ask your dear papa to encourage him to come about the house. He will be a very good, very pleasant acquaintance for you and Cynthia. The other is but a loutish young fellow, to my mind. There is no aristocratic bearing about him. I suppose he takes after his mother, who is but a parvenu, I've heard them say at the Towers. Molly was spiteful enough to have great pleasure in saying, "'I think I've heard her father was a Russian merchant and imported tallow and hemp. Mr. Osborne Hamley is extremely like her.' "'Indeed. But there's no calculating these things. Anyhow, he is the perfect gentleman in appearance and manner. The estate is entailed, is it not?' "'I know nothing about it,' said Molly. A short silence ensued. Then Mrs. Gibson said, Do you know, I almost think I must get dear Papa to have a little dinner-party, and ask Mr. Osborne Hamley. I should like to have him feel at home in this house. It would be something cheerful for him after the dullness and solitude of Hamley Hall, for the old people don't visit much, I believe." "'He's going back to Cambridge next week,' said Molly. "'Is he? Well, then, we'll put off our little dinner till Cynthia comes home. I should like to have some young society for her, poor darling, when she returns." "'When is she coming?' said Molly, who had always a longing curiosity for this same Cynthia's return. "'Oh, I'm not sure. Perhaps at the new year, perhaps not till Easter. I must get this drawing-room all new furnished first, and then I mean to fit up her room and yours just alike. They are just the same size, only on opposite sides of the passage.' Are you going to new-furnish that room?" said Molly, in astonishment at the never-ending changes. "'Yes, and yours too, darling, so don't be jealous.' "'Oh, please, Mama, not mine,' said Molly, taking in the idea for the first time. "'Yes, dear, you shall have yours done as well. A little French bed, and a new paper, and a pretty carpet, and a dressed-up toilet-table and glass will make it look quite a different place.' "'But I don't want it to look different. I like it as it is. Pray don't do anything to it.' "'What nonsense, child! I never heard anything more ridiculous. Most girls would be glad to get rid of furniture only fit for the lumber-room.' "'It was my own mamma's before she was married,' said Molly, in a very low voice, bringing out this last plea unwillingly, but with a certainty that it would not be resisted. Mrs. Gibson paused for a moment before she replied it's very much to your credit that you should have such feelings i'm sure but don't you think sentiment may be carried too far why we should have no new furniture at all and should have to put up with worm-eaten horrors besides my dear hollingford will seem very dull to cynthia after pretty gay france and i want to make the first impression attractive i've a notion i can settle her down near here and i want her to come in a good temper for between ourselves, my dear, she is a little, little wilful. You need not mention this to your papa." "'But can't you do Cynthia's room, and not mine? Please let mine alone." "'No, indeed, I couldn't agree to that. Only think what would be said of me by everybody, petting my own child, neglecting my husband's. I couldn't bear it." "'No one need know." "'In such a tittle-tattle place as Hollingford?' really, Molly, you are either very stupid or very obstinate, or else you don't care what hard things may be said about me, and all after a selfish fancy of your own. No, I owe myself the justice of acting in this manner as I please. Every one shall know I'm not a common stepmother. Every penny I spend on Cynthia I shall spend on you too, so it's no use talking any more about it." So Molly's little white dimity bed, her old-fashioned chest of drawers, and her other cherished relics of her mother's maiden days were consigned to the lumber-room. And after a while, when Cynthia and her great French boxes had come home, the old furniture that had filled up the space required for the fresh importation of trunks disappeared likewise into the same room. All this time the family at the towers had been absent. Lady Cumnor had been ordered to bath for the early part of the winter, and her family were with her there. On dull rainy days Mrs. Gibson used to bethink her of missing the Cumnors, for so she had taken to calling them since her position had become more independent of theirs. It marked a distinction between her intimacy in the family, and the reverential manner in which the townspeople were accustomed to speak of the Earl and the Countess. Both Lady Cumnor and Lady Harriet wrote to their dear Clare from time to time the former had generally some commissions that she wished to have executed at the towers or in the town and no one could do them so well as claire who was acquainted with all the tastes and ways of the countess these commissions were the cause of various bills for flies and cars from the george inn mr gibson pointed out this consequence to his wife but she in return bade him remark that a present of game was pretty sure to follow upon the satisfactory execution of lady cumnor's wishes Somehow Mr. Gibson did not quite like this consequence either, but he was silent about it at any rate. Lady Harriet's letters were short and amusing. She had that sort of regard for her old governess which prompted her to write from time to time and to feel glad when the half-voluntary task was accomplished. So there was no real outpouring of confidence, but enough news of the family and gossip of the place she was in as she thought would make Clare feel that she was not forgotten by her former pupils intermixed with moderate but sincere expressions of regard. How those letters were quoted and referred to by Mrs. Gibson in her conversations with the Hollingford ladies. She had found out their effect at Ashcombe, and it was not less at Hollingford. But she was rather perplexed at kindly messages to Molly, and at inquiries as to how the Miss Brownings liked the tea she had sent, and Molly had first to explain, and then to narrate at full length all the occurrences of the afternoon at Ashcombe Manor House and Lady Harriet's subsequent call upon her at Miss Browning's. "'What nonsense!' said Mrs. Gibson, with some annoyance. Lady Harriet only went to see you out of a desire of amusement. She would only make fun of Miss Browning's, and those two will be quoting her and talking about her just as if she was their intimate friend. I don't think she did make fun of them. She really seemed as if she had been very kind. And you suppose you know her ways better than I do, who have known her these fifteen years? I tell you, she turns every one into ridicule who does not belong to her set. Well, she always used to speak of Miss Browning's as Pexy and Flapsy." "'She promised me she would not,' said Molly, driven to bay. "'Promised you? Lady Harriet? What do you mean?' "'Only she spoke of them as Pexy and Flapsy, and when she talked of them coming to call on me at their house, I asked her not to come if she was going to—to to make fun of them. "'Upon my word! With all my long acquaintance with Lady Harriet I should never have ventured on such impertinence.' "'I didn't mean it as impertinence,' said Marley sturdily, "'and I don't think Lady Harriet took it as such. You can't know anything about it. She can put on any kind of manner.' Just then Squire Hamley came in. It was his first call, and Mrs. Gibson gave him graceful welcome and was quite ready to accept his apology for its tardiness, and to assure him that she quite understood the pressure of business on every landowner who farmed his own estate. But no such apology was made. He shook her hand heartily as a mark of congratulation on her good fortune in having secured such a prize as his friend Gibson, but said nothing about his long neglect of duty. Molly, who by this time knew the few strong expressions of his countenance well, was sure that something was the matter, and that he was very much disturbed he hardly attended to Mrs. Gibson's fluent opening of conversation, for she had already determined to make a favourable impression on the father of the handsome young man who was heir to an estate, besides his own personal agreeableness. But he turned to Molly, and addressing her said, almost in a low voice as if he was making a confidence to her that he did not intend Mrs. Gibson to hear, "'Molly, we are all wrong at home. Osborne has lost the fellowship at Trinity he went back to try for.' Then he is gone and failed miserably in his degree after all that he said, and that his mother said. And I, like a fool, went and boasted about my clever son. I can't understand it. I never expected anything extraordinary from Roger, but Osborne. And then it has thrown madam into one of her bad fits of illness. And she seems to have a fancy for you, child. Your father came to see her this morning. Poor thing, she's very poorly, I'm afraid. And she told him how she should like to have you about her and he said I might fetch you. You'll come, won't you, my dear? She's not a poor woman, such as many people think it's the only charity to be kind to, but she's just as forlorn of woman's care as if she was poor. Worse, I dare say." "'I'll be ready in ten minutes,' said Molly, much touched by the squire's words and manner, never thinking of asking her stepmother's consent, now that she had heard that her father had given his. As she rose to leave the room, Mrs. Gibson, who had only half heard what the squire had said, and was a little affronted at the exclusiveness of his confidence, said, "'My dear, where are you going?' "'Mrs. Hamley wants me, and Papa says I may go,' said Molly, and almost at the same time the squire replied, "'My wife is ill, and she's very fond of your daughter, and she begged Mr. Gibson to allow her to come to the hall for a little while, and he kindly said she might, and I'm come to fetch her.' "'Stop a minute, darling.' said Mrs. Gibson to Molly, a slight cloud over her countenance in spite of her caressing word. "'I am sure dear Papa quite forgot that you were to go out with me to-night to visit people,' continued she, addressing herself to the squire, "'with whom I am quite unacquainted, and it is very uncertain if Mr. Gibson can return in time to accompany me. So you see, I cannot allow Molly to go with you.' "'I shouldn't have thought it would have signified—' "'Brides are always brides, I suppose, and it's their part to be timid, but I shouldn't have thought it, in this case. And my wife sets her heart on things, as sick people do. Well, Molly,' in a louder tone for these foregoing sentences were spoken sotto voce, "'we must put it off till to-morrow, and it's our loss, not yours,' he continued, as he saw the reluctance with which she slowly returned to her place, "'you'll be as gay as can be to-night, I dare say.' "'No, I shall not.' broke in Molly. I never wanted to go, and now I shall want it less than ever." "'Hush, my dear,' said Mrs. Gibson, and then addressing the squire, she added, "'The visiting here is not all one could wish for so young a girl. No young people, no dances, nothing of gaiety. But it is wrong in you, Molly, to speak against such kind friends of your father's, as I understand these cockerels are. Don't give so bad an impression of yourself to the kind squire.' "'Let her alone, let her alone,' quoth he i see what she means she'd rather come and be in my wife's sick-room than go out for this visit to-night is there no way of getting her off none whatever said mrs gibson an engagement is an engagement with me and i consider that she is not only engaged to mrs Cockerell, but to me bound to accompany me in my husband's absence the squire was put out and when he was put out he had a trick of placing his hands on his knees and whistling softly to himself Molly knew this phase of his displeasure, and only hoped he would confine himself to this wordless expression of annoyance. It was pretty hard work for her to keep the tears out of her eyes, and she endeavoured to think of something else rather than dwell on regrets and annoyances. She heard Mrs. Gibson talking on in a sweet monotone, and wished to attend to what she was saying, but the squire's visible annoyance stuck sharper on her mind. At length, after a pause of silence, he started up and said, "'Well, it's no use.' poor madam, she won't like it. She'll be disappointed. But it's for one evening, but for one evening. She may come to-morrow, mayn't she? Or will the dissipation of such an evening as she describes be too much for her? There is a touch of savage irony in his manner, which frightened Mrs. Gibson into good behaviour. "'She shall be ready at any time you name. I am so sorry. My foolish shyness is in fault, I believe. But still you must acknowledge that an engagement is an engagement.' did I ever say an engagement was an elephant, madam? However, there's no use saying any more about it, or I shall forget my manners. I'm an old tyrant, and she, lying there in bed, poor girl, has always given me my own way. So you'll excuse me, Mrs. Gibson, won't you, and let Molly come along with me at ten tomorrow morning?' "'Certainly,' said Mrs. Gibson, smiling. But when his back was turned, she said to Molly, "'Now, my dear, I must never have you exposing me to the ill manners of such a man again, I don't call him a squire, I call him a boor, or a yeoman at best. You must not go on accepting or rejecting invitations as if you were an independent young lady, Molly. Pay me the respect of a reference to my wishes another time, if you please, my dear." "'Papa had said I might go,' said Molly, choking a little. As I am now your mamma, your references must be to me for the future. But as you are to go, you may as well look well dressed. I will lend you my new shawl for this visit, if you like it, and my set of green ribbons. I am always indulgent when proper respect is paid to me. And in such a house as Hamley Hall, no one can tell who may be coming and going, even if there is sickness in the family. Thank you. But I don't want the shawl or the ribbons, please. There will be nobody there except the family. There never is, I think. And now that she is so ill." Molly was on the point of crying at the thought of her friend lying ill and lonely, and looking for her arrival. Moreover she was sadly afraid lest the squire had gone off with the idea that she did not want to come, that she preferred that stupid, stupid party at the Cockerels. Mrs. Gibson too was sorry. She had an uncomfortable consciousness of having given way to a temper before a stranger, and a stranger too whose good opinion she had meant to cultivate. And she was also annoyed at Molly's tearful face. What can I do for you to bring you back into good temper?" she said. First you insist upon your knowing Lady Harriet better than I do—I, who have known her for eighteen or nineteen years at least. Then you jump at invitations without ever consulting me, or thinking of how awkward it would be for me to go stumping into a drawing-room all by myself—following my new name, too, which always makes me feel uncomfortable—it is such a sad come-down after Kirkpatrick. And then, when I offer you some of the prettiest things I have got— You say it does not signify how you were dressed. What can I do to please you, Molly? I, who delight in nothing more than peace in a family, to see you sitting there with despair upon your face?" Molly could stand it no longer. She went upstairs to her own room—her own new smart room, which hardly yet seemed a familiar place, and she began to cry so heartily and for so long a time that she stopped at length for very weariness. She thought of Mrs. Hamley wearying for her. Of the old hall, whose very quietness might become oppressive to an ailing person, of the trust the squire had had in her that she would come off directly with him, and all this oppressed her much more than the querulousness of her stepmother's words. Chapter Sixteen. Chapter Seventeen of Wives and Daughters. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Wives and Daughters by Elizabeth Gaskell. Chapter seventeen. Trouble at Hamley Hall. If molly thought that peace dwelt perpetually at Hamley Hall, she was sorely mistaken. Something was out of tune in the whole establishment, and for a very unusual thing, the common irritation seemed to have produced a common bond. All the servants were old in their places, and were told by some one of the family, or gathered from the unheeded conversation carried on before them, everything that affected master or mistress or either of the young gentlemen. Any one of them could have told Molly that the grievance which lay at the root of everything was the amount of the bills run up by Osborne at Cambridge, and which now that all chance of his obtaining a fellowship was over came pouring down upon the squire. But Molly, confident of being told by Mrs. Hamley herself anything which she wished to hear, encouraged no confidences from any one else. She was struck with the change in Madame's look as soon as she caught sight of her in the darkened room, lying on the sofa in her dressing-gown, all dressed in white, which almost rivalled the white wanness of her face. The squire ushered Molly in with, "'Here she is—at last!' And Molly had scarcely imagined that he had so much variety in the tones of his voice. The beginning of the sentence was spoken in a loud congratulatory manner while the last words were scarcely audible. He had seen the deathlike pallor on his wife's face—not a new sight, and one which had been presented to him gradually enough, but which was now always giving him a fresh shock. It was a lovely, tranquil winter's day. Every branch and every twig on the trees and shrubs were glittering with drops of the sun-melted hoar-frost. A robin was perched on a holly-bush, piping cheerily. But the blinds were down, and out of Mrs. Hamley's windows nothing of all this was to be seen. There was even a large screen placed between her and the wood-fire to keep off that cheerful blaze. Mrs. Hamley stretched out one hand to Molly and held hers firm. With the other she shaded her eyes. "'She is not so well this morning,' said the squire, shaking his head. "'But never fear, my dear one. Here's the doctor's daughter—nearly as good as the doctor himself. Have you had your your medicine—your beef-tea?' he continued going about on heavy tiptoe and peeping into every cup and glass. Then he returned to the sofa, looked at her for a minute or two, and softly kissed her, and told Molly he would leave her in charge. As if Mrs. Hamley was afraid of Molly's remarks or questions, she began in her turn a hasty system of interrogatories. "'Now, dear child, tell me all. It's no breach of confidence, for I shan't mention it again, and I shan't be here long.' How does it all go on? The new mother, the good resolutions. Let me help you if I can. I think with a girl I could have been of use. A mother does not know boys. But tell me anything you like and will. Don't be afraid of details. Even with Molly's small experience of illness she saw how much of restless fever there was in this speech, and instinct, or some such gift, prompted her to tell a long story of many things. The wedding day, her visit to Miss Browning's, the new furniture, Lady Harriet, etc., all in an easy flow of talk which was very soothing to Mrs. Hamley, inasmuch as it gave her something to think about beyond her own immediate sorrows. But Molly did not speak of her own grievances, nor of the new domestic relationship. Mrs. Hamley noticed this. "'And you and Mrs. Gibson get on happily together?' "'Not always,' said Molly. "'You know we didn't know much of each other before we were put to live together. I didn't like what the squire told me last night. He was very angry." That sore had not yet healed over, but Molly resolutely kept silence, beating her brains to think of some other subject of conversation. "'Ah, I see, Molly,' said Mrs. Hamley. "'You won't tell me your sorrows. And yet, perhaps, I could have done you some good.' "'I don't like,' said Molly, in a low voice. "'I think papa wouldn't like it. And besides, you have helped me so much—you and Mr. Roger Hamley. I often think of the things he said—they come in so usefully, and are such a strength to me." Oh, Roger, yes, he is to be trusted. Oh, Molly, I've a great deal to say to you myself—only not now. I must have my medicine and try to go to sleep. Good girl! You are stronger than I am, and can do without sympathy." Molly was taken to another room. The maid who conducted her to it told her that Mrs. Hamley had not wished her to have her nights disturbed, as they might probably have been if she had been in her former sleeping-room. In the afternoon Mrs. Hamley sent for her, and with the want of reticence common to invalids, especially to those suffering from long and depressing maladies, she told Molly of the family distress and disappointment. She made Molly sit down near her on a little stool and holding her hand and looking into her eyes to catch her spoken sympathy from their expression quicker than she could from her words, she said, "'Osborne has so disappointed us. I cannot understand it yet. And the squire was so terribly angry. I cannot think how all the money was spent—advances through money lenders besides bills. The squire does not show me how angry he is now, because he's afraid of another attack. But I know how angry he is.' You see, he has been spending ever so much money in reclaiming that land at Upton Common and is very hard pressed himself. But it would have doubled the value of the estate, and so we never thought anything of economics which would benefit Osborne in the long run. And now the squire says we must mortgage some of the land—and you can't think how it cuts him to the heart. He sold a great deal of timber to send the two boys to college." Osborne! Oh, what a dear, innocent boy he was! He was the heir, you know, and he was so clever. Everyone said he was sure of honors and a fellowship, and I don't know what all. And he did get a scholarship, and then all went wrong. I don't know how." That is the worst. Perhaps the squire wrote too angrily, and that stopped up confidence. But he might have told me. He would have done, I think, Molly, if he had been here face to face with me. But the squire, in his anger, told him not to show his face at home until he had paid off the debts he incurred out of his allowance out of two hundred and fifty a year to pay off more than nine hundred one way or another, and not to come home till then. Perhaps Roger will have debts, too. He had but two hundred, but then he was not the eldest son. The squire has given orders that the men are to be turned off the draining-works, and I lie awake thinking of their poor families this wintry weather. But what shall we do? I've never been strong, and perhaps I've been extravagant in my habits, and there were family traditions as to expenditure, and the reclaiming of this land. Oh, Molly! Osborne was such a sweet little baby, and such a loving boy—so clever, too! You know I read you some of his poetry. Now, could a person who wrote like that do anything very wrong? And yet I'm afraid he has." "'Don't you know at all how the money is gone?' asked Molly. "'No, not at all. That's the sting though tailor's bills, and bills for bookbinding, and wine and pictures—those come to four or five hundred—and though this expenditure is extraordinary, inexplicable to such simple folk as we are, yet it may be only the luxury of the present day. But the money for which he will give no account—of which, indeed, we only heard through the Squire's London agents, who found out that certain disreputable attorneys were making inquiries as to the entail of the estate—oh, Molly, worse than all! I don't know how to bring myself to tell you—as to the age and health of the squire, his dear father!" She began to sob, almost hysterically, yet she would go on talking in spite of Molly's efforts to stop her. "'Who held him in his arms, and blessed him, even before I had kissed him, and thought always so much of him as his heir and first-born darling! How he has loved him! How I have loved him! I sometimes have thought of late that we've almost done that good Roger injustice!' no i'm sure you've not only look at the way he loves you why you are his first thought he may not speak about it but any one may see it and dear dear mrs hamley said molly determined to say out all that was in her mind now that she had once got the word don't you think that it would be so much better not to misjudge mr osborne hamley we don't know what he has done with the money he is so good is he not that he may have wanted it to relieve some poor person Some tradesmen, for instance, pressed by creditors—some—you forget, dear," said Mrs. Hamley, smiling a little at the girl's impetuous romance, but sighing the next instant. "'That all the other bills come from tradesmen, who complain piteously of being kept out of their money.'" Molly was nonplussed for the moment, but then she said, "'I dare say they imposed upon him. I'm sure I've heard stories of young men being made regular victims of by the shopkeepers in great towns.' You're a great darling child," said Mrs. Hamley, comforted by Molly's strong partisanship—unreasonable and ignorant, though it was. "'And besides,' continued Molly, "'someone must always be acting wrongly in Osborne's—Mr. Osborne Hamley's, I mean—and I can't help saying Osborne sometimes, but indeed I always think of him as Mr. Osborne.' "'Never mind, Molly, what you call him. Only go on talking. It seems to do me good to hear the hopeful side taken. The squire has been so hurt and displeased—strange-looking men coming into the neighbourhood, too, questioning the tenants, and grumbling about the last fall of timber, as if they were calculating on the squire's death. That's just what I was going to speak about. Doesn't it show that they are bad men? And would bad men scruple to impose upon him, and to tell lies in his name, and to ruin him? Don't you see you only make him out weak instead of wicked?" Yes, perhaps I do. But I don't think he is weak. You know yourself, dear Mrs. Hamley, how really clever he is. Besides, I would rather he was weak than wicked. Weak people may find themselves all at once strong in heaven when they see things quite clearly, but I don't think the wicked will turn themselves into virtuous people all at once. "'I think I've been very weak, Molly,' said Mrs. Hamley, stroking Molly's curls affectionately. "'I've made such an idol of my beautiful Osborne, and he turns out to have feet of clay, not strong enough to stand firm on the ground. And that's the best view of his conduct too." What with his anger against his son and his anxiety about his wife, the difficulty of raising the money immediately required, and his irritation at the scarce concealed inquiries made by strangers as to the value of his property, the poor squire was in a sad state. He was angry and impatient with every one who came near him, and then was depressed at his own violent temper and unjust words the old servants, who perhaps cheated him in many small things, were beautifully patient under his upbraidings. They could understand bursts of passion and knew the cause of his variable moods as well as he did himself. The butler, who was accustomed to argue with his master about every fresh direction as to his work, now nudged Molly at dinner-time to make her eat of some dish which she had just been declining, and explained his conduct afterwards as follows. "'You see, miss, me and Cook had planned a dinner as would tempt master to eat when you say no thank you, and I hand you anything, master never so much as looks at it. But if you take a thing and eats with a relish, why, first he waits, and then he looks, and by and by he smells, and then he finds out as he's hungry, and falls to eating as natural as a kitten takes to mewing. That's the reason, miss, as I gave you a nudge and a wink, which no one knows better nor me was not manners." Osborne's name was never mentioned during these cheerless meals. The squire asked Molly questions about Hollingford people but did not seem much to attend to her answers. He used also to ask her every day how she thought that his wife was, but if Molly told the truth—that every day seemed to make her weaker and weaker—he was almost savage with the girl. He could not bear it, and he would not. Nay, once he was on the point of dismissing Mr. Gibson because he insisted on a consultation with Dr. Nichols, the great physician of the county. "'It's nonsense thinking her so ill as that. You know it's only the delicacy she's had for years and if you can't do her any good in such a simple case no pain only weakness and nervousness it is a simple case eh don't look in that puzzled way man you'd better give up altogether and i'll take her to bath or brighton or somewhere for change for in my opinion it's only moping and nervousness but the squire's bluff florid face was pinched with anxiety and worn with the effort of being deaf to the footsteps of fate as he said these words which belied his fears mr gibson replied very quietly I shall go on coming to see her, and I know you'll not forbid my visits, but I shall bring Dr. Nicholls with me the next time I come. I may be mistaken in my treatment, and I wish to God he may say I am mistaken in my apprehensions.' "'Don't tell me, then. I cannot bear them,' cried the squire. "'Of course we all must die, and she must too. But the cleverest doctor in England shan't go about coolly meeting out the life of such as her. I dare say I shall die first. I hope I shall.' But I'll knock down any one who speaks to me of death sitting within me. And besides, I think all doctors are ignorant quacks, pretending to knowledge that they haven't got. Ah, you may smile at me, I don't care. Unless you can tell me I shall die first, neither you nor your Dr. Nicholls shall come prophesying and croaking about this house." Mr. Gibson went away, heavy at heart from the thought of Mrs. Hamley's approaching death, but thinking little enough of the squire's speeches. He had almost forgotten them, in fact, when about nine o'clock that evening a groom rode in from Hamley Hall in hot haste with a note from the squire. "'Dear Gibson, for God's sake forgive me if I was rude to-day. She is much worse. Come and spend the night here. Write for Nicholls and all the physicians you want Write before you start off. They may give her ease. There were Whitworth doctors much talked of in my youth for curing people given up by the regular doctors. Can't you get one of them?' I put myself in your hands. Sometimes I think it is the turning-point, and she'll rally after this bout. I trust all to you—yours ever, R. Hamley. P.S. Molly is a treasure. God help me." Of course Mr. Gibson went—for the first time since his marriage, cutting short Mrs. Gibson's querulous lamentations over her life as involved in that of a doctor called out at all hours of day and night. He brought Mrs. Hamley through this attack and for a day or two the squire's alarm and gratitude made him docile in Mr. Gibson's hands. Then he returned to the idea of its being a crisis through which his wife had passed, and that she was now on the way to recovery. But the day after the consultation with Dr. Nichols, Mr. Gibson said to Molly, "'Molly, I have written to Osborne and Roger. Do you know Osborne's address?' "'No, papa. He's in disgrace. I don't know if the squire knows. And she has been too ill to write.' "'Never mind. I'll enclose it to Roger, whatever those lads may be to others. There's as strong brotherly love as ever I saw between the two. Roger will know. And Molly, they are sure to come home as soon as they hear my report of their mother's state. I wish you'd tell the squire what I've done. It's not a pleasant piece of work, and I'll tell Madam myself in my own way. I'd have told him if he'd been at home. But you say he was obliged to go to Ashcombe on business. Quite obliged. He was so sorry to miss you— But, papa, he will be so angry. You don't know how mad he is against Osborne." Molly dreaded the squire's anger when she gave him her father's message. She had seen quite enough of the domestic relations of the Hamley family to understand that, underneath his old-fashioned courtesy and the pleasant hospitality he showed to her as a guest, there was a strong will, a vehement, passionate temper, along with that degree of obstinacy in prejudices—or opinions, as he would have called them so common to those who have, neither in youth nor in manhood, mixed largely with their kind. She had listened day after day to Mrs. Hamley's plaintive murmurs as to the deep disgrace in which Osborne was being held by his father—the prohibition of his coming home—and she hardly knew how to begin to tell him that the letter summoning Osborne had already been sent off. Their dinners were tete-a-tete. The squire tried to make them pleasant to Molly, feeling deeply grateful to her for the soothing comfort she was to his wife. He made merry speeches which sank away into silence, and at which they each forgot to smile. He ordered up rare wines which she did not care for, but tasted out of complaisance. He noticed that one day she had eaten some brown beret pears as if she liked them, and as his trees had not produced many this year he gave directions that this particular kind should be sought for through the neighbourhood. Molly felt that in many ways he was full of good-will towards her but it did not diminish her dread of touching on the one sore point in the family. However, it had to be done and that without delay. The great log was placed on the after-dinner fire, the hearth swept up, the ponderous candles snuffed, and then the door was shut and Molly and the squire were left to their dessert. She sat at the side of the table in her old place. That at the head was vacant. Yet, as no orders had been given to the contrary, the plate and glasses and napkin were always arranged as regularly and methodically as if Mrs. Hamley would come in as usual. Indeed, sometimes when the door by which she used to enter was opened by any chance, Molly caught herself looking round as if she expected to see the tall languid figure in the elegant draperies of rich silk and soft lace which Mrs. Hamley was wont to wear of an evening. This evening it struck her as a new thought of pain that into that room she would come no more. She had fixed to give her father's message at this very point of time, but something in her throat choked her, and she hardly knew how to govern her voice. The squire got up and went to the broad fireplace, to strike into the middle of the great log and split it up into blazing, sparkling pieces. His back was towards her. Molly began, "'When papa was here to-day he bade me tell you he had written to Mr. Roger Hamley to say that that he thought he'd better come home. And he enclosed a letter to Mr. Osborne, Hamley, to say the same thing." The squire put down the poker, but he still kept his back to Molly. "'He sent for Osborne and Roger?' he asked at length. Molly answered, "'Yes." Then there was a dead silence which Molly thought would never end. The squire had placed his two hands on the high chimney-piece and stood leaning over the fire. Roger would have been down from Cambridge on the eighteenth, said he, and he has sent for Osborne, too. "'Did he know?' he continued, turning round to Molly, with something of the fierceness she had anticipated in look and voice. In another moment he had dropped his voice. "'It's right—quite right. I understand. It has come at length. Come—come! Come. Osborne has brought it on, though,' with a fresh access of anger in his tones. She might have—' some word Molly could not hear. She thought it sounded like—lingered. "'But for that. I can't forgive him. I cannot.' And then he suddenly left the room. While Molly sat there still, very sad in her sympathy withal, he put his head in again. "'Go to her, my dear. I cannot. Not just yet. But I will soon. Just this bit. And after that I won't lose a moment.' You're a good girl. God bless you." It is not to be supposed that Molly had remained all this time at the hall without interruption. Once or twice her father had brought her a summons home. Molly thought that she could perceive that he had brought it unwillingly. In fact, it was Mrs. Gibson that had sent for her, almost as it were to preserve a right of way through her actions. "'You shall come back to-morrow or the next day,' her father had said. But Mamma seems to think people will put a bad construction on your being so much away from home so soon after our marriage." "'Oh, papa, I'm afraid Mrs. Hamley will miss me. I do so like being with her." "'I don't think it is likely she will miss you as much as she would have done a month or two ago. She sleeps so much now that she is scarcely conscious of the lapse of time. I'll see that she come back here again in a day or two. So out of the silence and the soft melancholy of the hall, Molly returned to the all-pervading element of chatter and gossip at Hollingford. Mrs. Gibson received her kindly enough. Once she had a smart new winter bonnet ready to give her as a present, but she did not care to hear any particulars about the friends whom Molly had just left, and her few remarks on the state of affairs at the hall jarred terribly on the sensitive Molly. "'What a time she lingers! Your papa never expected she would last half so long after that attack. It must be very wearing work to them all. I declare you look quite another creature since you were there. One can only wish it mayn't last for their sakes." "'You don't know how the squire values every minute,' said Molly. "'Why, you say she sleeps a great deal, and doesn't talk much when she's awake, and there's not the slightest hope for her. And yet at such times people are kept on the tenter-hooks with watching and waiting. I know it by my dear Kirkpatrick. There really were days when I thought it would never end. But we won't talk any more of such dismal things. You've had quite enough of them, I'm sure, and it always makes me melancholy to hear of illness and death. And yet your papa seems sometimes as if he could talk of nothing else. I'm going to take you out to-night, though, and that'll give you something of a change. And I've been getting Miss Rose to trim up one of my old gowns for you. It's too tight for me. There's some talk of dancing. It's at Mrs. Edwards.' "'Oh, Mamma, I can't go!' cried Molly. I've been so much with her, and she may be suffering so, or even dying, and I to be dancing." "'Nonsense! You're no relation, so you need not feel it so much. I wouldn't urge you if she was likely to know about it and be hurt. But as it is, it's all fixed that you are to go. And don't let us have any nonsense about it. We might sit twirling our thumbs and repeating hymns all our lives long, if we were to do nothing else when people were dying." "'I cannot go.' repeated Molly, And acting upon impulse, and almost to her own surprise, she appealed to her father, who came into the room at this very time. He contracted his dark eyebrows and looked annoyed as both wife and daughter poured their different sides of the argument into his ears. He sat down in a desperation of patience. When his turn came to pronounce a decision, he said, "'I suppose I can have some lunch. I went away at six this morning and there's nothing in the dining-room. I have to go off again directly.' Molly started to the door. Mrs. Gibson made haste to ring the bell. "'Where are you going, Molly?' said she, sharply. "'Only to see about Papa's lunch. There are servants to do it, and I don't like your going to the kitchen. "'Come, Molly, sit down and be quiet,' said her father. "'One comes home wanting peace and quietness, and food too. If I am to be appealed to, to which I beg, I may not be another time, I settle that Molly stops at home this evening. I shall come back late and be tired.' I see that I have something ready to eat, Goosey, and then I'll dress myself up in my best and go and fetch you home, my dear. I wish all these wedding festivities were over well. Ready, is it? Then I'll go into the dining-room and gorge myself. A doctor ought to be able to eat like a camel—or like Major Dougald Dalgetty." It was well for Molly that callers came in just at this time, for Mrs. Gibson was extremely annoyed. They told her some little local piece of news, however, which filled up her mind and Molly found that, if she only expressed wonder enough at the engagement they had both heard of from the departed callers, the previous discussion as to her accompanying her stepmother or not might be entirely passed over. Not entirely, though, for the next morning she had to listen to a very brilliantly touched-up account of the dance and the gaiety which she had missed, and also to be told that Mrs. Gibson had changed her mind about giving her the gown, and thought now that she should reserve it for Cynthia—if only it was long enough—but Cynthia was so tall quite overgrown in fact the chances seemed equally balanced as to whether molly might not have the gown after all end of chapter 17 chapter 18 of wives and daughters this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by elizabeth clatt wives and daughters by elizabeth gaskell chapter 18 MR. OSBORNE'S SECRET Osborne and Roger came to the hall. Molly found Roger established there when she returned after this absence at home. She gathered that Osborne was coming, but very little was said about him in any way. The squire scarcely ever left his wife's room. He sat by her, watching her, and now and then moaning to himself. She was so much under the influence of opiates that she did not often rouse up but when she did she almost invariably asked for Molly. On these rare occasions she would ask after Osborne, where he was, if he had been told, and if he was coming. In her weakened and confused state of intellect she seemed to have retained two strong impressions, one of the sympathy with which Molly had received her confidence about Osborne, the other of the anger which her husband entertained against him. Before the squire she never mentioned Osborne's name nor did she seem at her ease in speaking about him to Roger, while when she was alone with Molly she hardly spoke of any one else. She must have had some sort of wandering idea that Roger blamed his brother, while she remembered Molly's eager defense, which she had thought hopelessly improbable at the time. At any rate she made Molly her confidant about her firstborn. She sent her to ask Roger how soon he would come, for she seemed to know perfectly well that he was coming. Tell me all, Roger says. He will tell you. But it was several days before Molly could ask Roger any questions, and meanwhile Mrs. Hamley's state had materially altered. At length Molly came upon Roger sitting in the library, his head buried in his hands. He did not hear her footstep till she was close beside him. Then he lifted up his face, red and stained with tears, his hair all ruffled up and in disorder. I've been wanting to see you alone," she began. Your mother does so want some news of your brother, Osborne. She told me last week to ask you about him, but I did not like to speak of him before your father. She has hardly ever named him to me. I don't know why, for to me she used to talk of him perpetually. I have seen so little of her this week, and I think she forgets a great deal now. Still, if you don't mind, I should like to be able to tell her something if she asks me again." He put his head again between his hands and did not answer her for some time. "'What does she want to know?' said he at last. "'Does she know that Osborne is coming soon—any day?' "'Yes, but she wants to know where he is.' "'I can't tell you. I don't exactly know. I believe he's abroad, but I'm not sure.' that you sent Papa's letter to him?" I've sent it to a friend of his who will know better than I do where he's to be found. You must know that he isn't free from creditors, Molly. You can't have been one of the family like a child of the house almost, without knowing that much. For that and for other reasons I don't exactly know where he is." I will tell her so. You are sure he will come?" Quite sure. But, Molly— I think my mother may live some time yet. Don't you? Dr. Nichols said so yesterday when he was here with your father. He said she had rallied more than he had ever expected. You're not afraid of any change that makes you so anxious for Osborne's coming?" No, it's only for her that I asked. She did seem so to crave for news of him. I think she dreamed of him. And then when she wakened it was a relief to her to talk to me about him. She always seemed to associate me with him. We used to speak so much of him when we were together." "'I don't know what we should any of us have done without you. You've been like a daughter to my mother." "'I do so love her,' said Molly softly. "'Yes, I see. Have you ever noticed that she sometimes calls you Fanny? It was the name of a little sister of ours who died. I think she often takes you for her. It was partly that, and partly that at such a time as this one can't stand on formalities, that made me call you Molly. I hope you don't mind it." "'No. I like it. But will you tell me something more about your brother? She really hungers for news of him." "'She'd better ask me herself." "'Yet no. I am so involved by promises of secrecy, Molly, that I couldn't satisfy her if she once began to question me. I believe he's in Belgium, and that he went there about a fortnight ago, partly to avoid his creditors. You know my father has refused to pay his debts." Yes. At least I knew something like it. I don't believe my father could raise all the money at once without having recourse to steps which he would exceedingly recoil from. Yet for the time it places Osborne in a very awkward position." "'I think what vexes your father a good deal is some mystery as to how the money was spent.' "'If my mother ever says anything about that part of the affair,' said Roger hastily, "'assure her from me that there's nothing of vice or wrongdoing about it. I can't say more. I'm tied. But set her mind at ease on that point.' I'm not sure if she remembers all her painful anxiety about this," said Molly. She used to speak a great deal to me about him before you came, when your father seemed so angry. And now whenever she sees me she wants to talk on the old subject, but she doesn't remember so clearly. If she were to see him, I don't believe she would recollect why she was uneasy about him when he was absent. He must be here soon. I expect him every day said Roger uneasily. "'Do you think your father will be very angry with him?' said Molly, with as much timidity as if the squire's displeasure might be directed against her. "'I don't know,' said Roger. "'My mother's illness may alter him, but he didn't easily forgive us formerly. "'I remember once—but that is nothing to the purpose.' I can't help fancying that he has put himself under some strong restraint for my mother's sake, and that he won't express much. But it doesn't follow that he will forget it. My father is a man of few affections, but what he has are very strong. He feels anything that touches him on these points deeply and permanently—that unlucky valuing of the property. It has given my father the idea of post-obits." "'What are they?' asked Molly raising money to be paid on my father's death, which, of course, involves calculations as to the duration of his life." "'How shocking!' said she. "'I'm as sure as I am of my own life that Osborne never did anything of the kind. But my father expressed his suspicions in language that irritated Osborne, and he didn't speak out, and won't justify himself even as much as he might. And much as he loves me I've but little influence over him, or else he would tell my father all. Well, we must leave it to time," he added, sighing. My mother would have brought us all right if she'd been what she once was. He turned away, leaving Molly very sad. She knew that every member of the family she cared for so much was in trouble, out of which she saw no exit, and her small power of helping them was diminishing day by day as Mrs. Hamley sank more and more under the influence of opiates and stupefying illness. Her father had spoken to her only this very day of the desirableness of her returning home for good. Mrs. Gibson wanted her—for no particular reason, but for many small fragments of reasons. Mrs. Hamley had ceased to want her much, only occasionally appearing to remember her existence. Her position—her father thought the idea had not entered her head—in a family of which the only woman was an invalid confined to bed was becoming awkward. But Molly had begged hard to remain two or three days longer, only that, only till Friday. If Mrs. Hamley should want her, she argued with tears in her eyes, and should hear that she had left the house, she would think her so unkind, so ungrateful. My dear child, she's getting past wanting any one. The keenness of earthly feelings is deadened. Papa, that is worst of all. I cannot bear it. I won't believe it. She may not ask for me again, and may quite forget me, but I'm sure to the very last if the medicines don't stupefy her she will look round for the squire and her children—for poor Osborne most of all—because he's in sorrow." Mr. Gibson shook his head, but said nothing in reply. In a minute or two he asked, "'I don't like to take you away while you even fancy you can be of use or comfort to one who has been so kind to you, but if she hasn't wanted you before Friday—' Will he be convinced? Will he come home willingly?" "'If I go then I may see her once again, even if she hasn't asked for me,' inquired Molly. "'Yes, of course. You must make no noise, no step. But you may go in and see her. I must tell you I'm almost certain she won't ask for you.' "'But she may, papa. I will go home on Friday if she does not. I think she will.' So Molly hung about the house, trying to do all that she could out of the sick-room for the comfort of those in it. They only came out for meals or for necessary business, and found little time for talking to her, so her life was solitary enough, waiting for the call that never came. The evening of the day on which she had had the above conversation with Roger, Osborne arrived. He came straight into the drawing-room where Molly was seated on the rug, reading by firelight, as she did not like to ring for candles merely for her own use. Osborne came in with a kind of hurry which almost made him appear as if he would trip himself up and fall down. Molly rose. He had not noticed her before. Now he came forwards and took hold of her hands, leading her into the full flickering light and straining his eyes to look into her face. "'How is she? You will tell me. You must know the truth. I've traveled day and night since I got your father's letter. Before she could frame her answer, he had sat down in the nearest chair, covering his eyes with his hand. "'She's very ill,' said Molly. "'That you know, but I don't think she suffers much pain. She has wanted you sadly.' He groaned aloud. "'My father forbade me to come!' "'I know,' said Molly, anxious to prevent his self-reproach. "'Your brother was away too. I think no one knew how ill she was. She had been an invalid for so long. You know—yes, she told you a great deal. She was very fond of you. And God knows how I loved her. If I had not been forbidden to come home, I should have told her all. Does my father know of my coming now? Yes, said Molly. I told him papa had sent for you. Just at that moment the squire came in. He had not heard of Osborne's arrival, and was seeking Molly to ask her to write a letter for him. Osborne did not stand up when his father entered. He was too much exhausted, too much oppressed by his feelings, and also too much estranged by his father's angry, suspicious letters. If he had come forward with any manifestation of feeling at this moment everything might have been different. But he waited for his father to see him before he uttered a word. All that the squire said when his eye fell upon him at last was, "'You here, sir?' and breaking off in the directions he was giving to Molly, he abruptly left the room. All the time his heart was yearning after his firstborn, but mutual pride kept them asunder. Yet he went straight to the butler and asked of him when Mr. Osborne had arrived and how he had come and if he had had any refreshment, dinner or what since his arrival. "'For I think I forget everything now,' said the poor squire, putting his hand up to his head, For the life of me, I can't remember whether we've had dinner or not. These long nights, and all this sorrow and watching, quite bewilder me." "'Perhaps, sir, you will take some dinner with Mr. Osborne. Mrs. Morgan is sending up his directly. You hardly sat down at dinner-time, sir. You thought my mistress wanted something." "'Aye, I remember now. No, I won't have any more. Give Mr. Osborne what wine he chooses. Perhaps he can eat and drink." So the squire went away upstairs with bitterness as well as sorrow in his heart. When lights were brought, Molly was struck with the change in Osborne. He looked haggard and worn, perhaps with travelling and anxiety. Not quite such a dainty gentleman either, as Molly had thought him, when she had last seen him calling on her stepmother two months before. But she liked him better now. The tone of his remarks pleased her more. He was simpler and less ashamed of showing his feelings. He asked after Roger in a warm, longing kind of way. Roger was out. He had ridden to Ashcombe to transact some business for the squire. Osborne evidently wished for his return, and hung about restlessly in the drawing-room after he had dined. "'You're sure I mayn't see her tonight?" he asked Molly for the third or fourth time. "'No, indeed. I will go up again if you like it. But Mrs. Jones, the nurse Dr. Nichols sent, is a very decided person. I went up while you were at dinner, and Mrs. Hamley had just taken her drops, and was on no account to be disturbed by seeing any one, much less by any excitement." Osborne kept walking up and down the long drawing-room, half talking to himself, half to Molly. "'I wish Roger would come. He seems to be the only one to give me a welcome. Does my father always live upstairs in my mother's rooms, Miss Gibson?' He has done since her last attack. I believe he reproaches himself for not having been enough alarmed before. You heard all the words he said to me. They were not much of a welcome, were they? And my dear mother—who always, whether I was to blame or not—I suppose Roger is sure to come home to-night?" Quite sure. You were staying here, are you not? Do you often see my mother, or does this omnipotent nurse keep you out too? Mrs. Hamley hasn't asked for me for three days now, and I don't go into her room unless she asks. I'm leaving on Friday, I believe. My mother was very fond of you, I know." After a while, he said, in a voice that had a great deal of sensitive pain in its tone, "'I suppose—do you know—whether she is quite conscious—quite herself?' "'Not always conscious,' said Molly tenderly. She has to take so many opiates, but she never wonders, only forgets, and sleeps." "'Oh, mother—mother!' said he, stopping suddenly and hanging over the fire, his hands on the chimney-piece. When Roger came home Molly thought it time to retire. Poor girl! It was getting to be time for her to leave this scene of distress in which she could be of no use she sobbed herself to sleep this Tuesday night. Two days more and it would be Friday, and she would have to wrench up the roots she had shot down into this ground. The weather was bright the next morning, and morning and sunny weather cheer up young hearts. Molly sat in the dining-room making tea for the gentlemen as they came down. She could not help hoping that the squire and Osborne might come to a better understanding before she left, for after all, in the dissension between father and son, lay a bitterer sting than in the illness sent by God. But though they met at the breakfast-table they purposely avoided addressing each other. Perhaps the natural subject of conversation between the two at such a time would have been Osborne's long journey the night before. But he had never spoken of the place he had come from, whether north, south, east, or west, and the squire did not choose to allude to anything that might bring out what his son wished to conceal. Again there was an unexpressed idea in both their minds that Mrs. Hamley's present illness was much aggravated, if not entirely brought on, by the discovery of Osborne's debts. So many inquiries and answers on that head were tabooed. In fact their attempts at easy conversation were limited to local subjects and principally addressed to Molly or Roger. Such intercourse was not productive of pleasure, or even of friendly feeling though there was a thin outward surface of politeness and peace. Long before the day was over Molly wished that she had acceded to her father's proposal and gone home with him. No one seemed to want her. Mrs. Jones, the nurse, assured her time after time that Mrs. Hamley had never named her name. And her small services in the sick-room were not required since there was a regular nurse. Osborne and Roger seemed all in all to each other and Molly now felt how much the short conversations she had had with Roger had served to give her something to think about, all during the remainder of her solitary days. Osborne was extremely polite, had even expressed his gratitude to her for her attentions to his mother in a very pleasant manner, but he appeared to be unwilling to show her any of the deeper feelings of his heart, and almost ashamed of his exhibition of emotion the night before. He spoke to her as any agreeable young man speaks to any pleasant young lady but Molly almost resented this. It was only the squire who seemed to make her of any account. He gave her letters to write, small bills to reckon up, and she could have kissed his hands for thankfulness. The last afternoon of her stay at the hall came. Roger had gone out on the squire's business. Molly went into the garden, thinking over the last summer, when Mrs. Hamley's sofa used to be placed under the old cedar tree on the lawn and when the warm air seemed to be scented with roses and sweetbriar. Now the trees leafless, there was no sweet odor in the keen frosty air, and looking up at the house there were the white sheets of blinds shutting out the pale winter sky from the invalid's room. Then she thought of the day her father had brought her the news of his second marriage. The thicket was tangled with dead weeds and rime and hoar-frost, and the beautiful fine articulations of branches and boughs and delicate twigs were all intertwined in leafless distinctness against the sky. Could she ever be so passionately unhappy again? Was it goodness or was it numbness that made her feel as though life was too short to be troubled much about anything? Death seemed the only reality. She had neither energy nor heart to walk far or briskly, and turned back towards the house. The afternoon sun was shining brightly on the windows and stirred up to unusual activity by some unknown cause, the housemaids had opened the shutters and windows of the generally unused library. The middle window was also a door—the white painted wood went halfway up. Molly turned along the little flag-paved path that led past the library windows to the gate and the white railings at the front of the house and went in at the opened door. She had had leave given to choose out any books she wished to read and to take them home with her and it was just the sort of half-doddling employment suited to her taste this afternoon. She mounted on the ladder to get to a particular shelf high up in a dark corner of the room, and finding there some volume that looked interesting, she sat down on the step to read part of it. There she sat in her bonnet and cloak when Osborne suddenly came in. He did not see her at first. Indeed, he seemed in such a hurry that he probably might not have noticed her at all if she had not spoken. "'Am I in your way?' I only came in here for a moment to look for some books." She came down the steps as she spoke, still holding the book in her hand. "'Not at all. It is I who am disturbing you. I must just write a letter for the post, and then I shall be gone. Is not this open door too cold for you?' "'Oh, no! It is so fresh and pleasant!' She began to read again, sitting on the lowest step of the ladder, he to write at the large old-fashioned writing-table close to the window. There was a minute or two of profound silence, in which the rapid scratching of Osborne's pen upon the paper was the only sound. Then came a click of the gate, and Roger stood at the open door. His face was towards Osborne sitting in the light, his back, to Molly, crouched up in the corner. He held out a letter, and said in hoarse breathlessness, "'Here's a letter from your wife, Osborne. I went past the post-office and thought—' Osborne stood up angry dismay upon his face. "'Roger! What have you done? Don't you see her?' Roger looked round and Molly stood up in her corner, red, trembling, miserable, as though she were a guilty person. Roger entered the room. All three seemed to be equally dismayed. Molly was the first to speak. She came forward and said, "'I am so sorry. I didn't wish to hear it, but I couldn't help it. "'You will trust me, won't you?' And turning to Roger, she said to him with tears in her eyes, "'Please say you know, I shall not tell.' "'We can't help it,' said Osborne gloomily. "'Only Roger, who knew of what importance it was, ought to have looked round him before speaking.' "'So I should,' said Roger. "'I'm more vexed with myself than you can conceive. "'Not but what I'm as sure of you as of myself,' continued he, turning to Molly. "'Yes, but,' said Osborne, "'you see how many chances there are that even the best-meaning persons may let out what it is of such consequence to me to keep secret.' "'I know you think it so,' said Roger. "'Well, don't let us begin that old discussion again—at any rate before a third person.' Molly had had hard work all this time to keep from crying. Now that she was alluded to as the third person before whom conversation was to be restrained, she said, "'I'm going away. Perhaps I ought not to have been here. I'm very sorry, very. But I'll try and forget what I've heard.' "'You can't do that,' said Osborne, still ungraciously. "'But will you promise me never to speak about it to any one? Not even to me, or to Roger? Will you try to act and speak as if you had never heard it?' I'm sure from what Roger has told me about you that if you give me this promise I may rely upon it." "'Yes, I will promise,' said Molly, putting out her hand as a kind of pledge. Osborne took it, but rather as if the action was superfluous. She added, "'I think I should have done so even without a promise. But it is perhaps better to bind oneself. I will go away now. I wish I'd never come into this room.' She put down her book on the table very softly and turned to leave the room, choking down her tears until she was in the solitude of her own chamber. But Roger was at the door before her, holding it open for her, and reading—she felt that he was reading—her face. He held out his hand for hers, and his firm grasp expressed both sympathy and regret for what had occurred. She could hardly keep back her sobs till she reached her bedroom. Her feelings had been overwrought for some time past, without finding the natural vent in action. The leaving Hamley Hall had seemed so sad before, and now she was troubled with having to bear away a secret which she ought never to have known, and the knowledge of which had brought out a very uncomfortable responsibility. Then there would arise a very natural wonder as to who Osborne's wife was. Molly had not stayed so long and so intimately in the Hamley family without being aware of the manner in which the future lady of Hamley was planned for. The squire, for instance, partly in order to show Osborne his heir was above the reach of Molly Gibson, the doctor's daughter, in the early days before he knew Molly well, had often alluded to the grand, the high, and the wealthy marriage which Hamley of Hamley, as represented by his clever, brilliant, handsome son Osborne, might be expected to make. Mrs. Hamley, too, unconsciously on her part, showed the project that she was constantly devising for the reception of the unknown daughter-in-law that was to be. "'The drawing-room must be refurnished when Osborne marries,' or, "'Osborne's wife will like to have the west suite of rooms to herself. It will, perhaps, be a trial to her to live with the old couple, but we must arrange it so that she will feel it as little as possible. Of course, when Mrs. Osborne comes we must try and give her a new carriage. The old one does well enough for us." These and similar speeches had given Molly the impression of the future Mrs. Osborne as of some beautiful grand young lady, whose very presence would make the old hall into a stately formal mansion, instead of the pleasant, unceremonious home that it was at present. Osborne too, who had spoken with such languid criticism to Mrs. Gibson about various country bells, and even in his own home was apt to give himself airs, Only at home his airs were poetically fastidious, while with Mrs. Gibson they had been socially fastidious. What unspeakably elegant beauty had he chosen for his wife! Who had satisfied him? And yet satisfying him had to have her marriage kept in concealment from his parents. At length Molly tore herself up from her wonderings. It was of no use. She could not find out. She might not even try. The blank wall of her promise blocked up the way. Perhaps it was not even right to wonder, and endeavour to remember slight speeches, casual mentions of a name, so as to piece them together into something coherent. Molly dreaded seeing either of the brothers again, but they all met at dinner-time as if nothing had happened. The squire was taciturn, either from melancholy or displeasure. He had never spoken to Osborne since his return, excepting about the commonest trifles, when intercourse could not be avoided and his wife's state oppressed him like a heavy cloud coming over the light of day osborne put on an indifferent manner to his father which molly felt sure was assumed but it was not conciliatory for all that roger quiet steady and natural talked more than all the others but he too was uneasy and in distress on many accounts to-day he principally addressed himself to molly entering into rather long narrations of late discoveries in natural history which kept the current of talk without requiring much reply from any one. Molly had expected Osborne to look something different from usual, conscious, or ashamed, or resentful, or even married. But he was exactly the Osborne of the morning—handsome, elegant, languid in manner and in look, cordial with his brother, polite towards her, secretly uneasy at the state of things between his father and himself. She would never have guessed the concealed romance which lay perdu under that everyday behaviour. She had always wished to come into direct contact with a love story. Here she had, and she only found it very uncomfortable. There is a sense of concealment and uncertainty about it all, and her honest, straightforward father, her quiet life at Hollingford, which even with all its drawbacks was above-board, and where everybody knew what everybody was doing, seemed secure and pleasant in comparison. Of course she felt great pain at quitting the hall, and at the mute farewell she had taken of her sleeping and unconscious friend. But leaving Mrs. Hamley now was a different thing to what it had been a fortnight ago. Then she was wanted at any moment, and felt herself to be of comfort. Now her very existence seemed forgotten by the poor lady whose body appeared to be living so long after her soul. She was sent home in the carriage, loaded with true thanks from every one of the family. Osborne ransacked the greenhouses for flowers for her. Roger had chosen her out books of every kind. The squire himself kept shaking her hand without being able to speak his gratitude till at last he took her in his arms and kissed her as he would have done a daughter. End of chapter eighteen. Chapter nineteen of Wives and Daughters. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clet Wives and Daughters, by Elizabeth Gaskell, Chapter Nineteen. Cynthia's Arrival. Molly's father was not at home when she returned, and there was no one to give her a welcome. Mrs. Gibson was out paying calls. The servants told Molly she went upstairs to her own room, meaning to unpack and arrange her borrowed books. Rather, to her surprise, she saw the chamber corresponding to her own being dusted. Water and towels, too, were being carried in. "'Is anyone coming?' she asked of the housemaid. Missus's daughter from France. Miss Kirkpatrick is coming to-morrow.' Was Cynthia coming at last? Oh, what a pleasure it would be to have a companion, a girl, a sister of her own age! Molly's depressed spirits sprang up again with bright elasticity she longed for Mrs. Gibson's return to ask her all about it. It must be very sudden, for Mr. Gibson had said nothing of it at the hall the day before. No quiet reading now, the books were hardly put away with Molly's usual neatness. She went down into the drawing-room and could not settle to anything. At last Mrs. Gibson came home, tired out with her walk and her heavy velvet cloak. Until that was taken off and she had rested herself for a few minutes she seemed quite unable to attend to Molly's questions. "'Oh, yes, Cynthia is coming home to-morrow, by the umpire which passes through at ten o'clock. What an oppressive day it is for the time of year! I really am almost ready to faint. Cynthia heard of some opportunity, I believe, and was only too glad to leave school a fortnight earlier than we planned. She never gave me the chance of writing to say I did or did not like her coming so much before the time and I shall have to pay for her just the same as if she had stopped. And I meant to have asked her to bring me a French bonnet, and then you could have had one made after mine. But I'm very glad she's coming, poor dear." "'Is anything the matter with her?' asked Molly. "'Oh, no! Why should there be?' You called her poor dear, and it made me afraid lest she might be ill. Oh, no! It's only a way I got into when Mr. Kirkpatrick died—a fatherless girl you know one always does call them poor dears. Oh, no, Cynthia is never ill. She's as strong as a horse. She never would have felt to-day as I have done. Could you get me a glass of wine and a biscuit, my dear? I'm really quite faint." Mr. Gibson was much more excited about Cynthia's arrival than her own mother was. He anticipated her coming as a great pleasure to Molly, on whom, in spite of his recent marriage and his new wife, his interests principally centered. He even found time to run upstairs and see the bedrooms of the two girls, for the furniture of which he had paid a pretty round sum. "'Well, I suppose young ladies like their bedrooms decked out in this way. It's very pretty, certainly, but—' "'I liked my old room better, Papa, but perhaps Cynthia is accustomed to such decking up.' "'Perhaps. At any rate, she'll see we've tried to make it pretty. Yours is like hers.' "'That's right.' It might have hurt her if hers had been smarter than yours. Now good-night in your fine flimsy bed." Molly was up betimes, almost before it was light, arranging her pretty Hamley flowers in Cynthia's room. She could hardly eat her breakfast that morning. She ran upstairs and put on her things, thinking that Mrs. Gibson was quite sure to go down to the George Inn where the umpire stopped to meet her daughter after a two years' absence. But, to her surprise, Mrs. Gibson had arranged herself at her great worsted-work frame, just as usual, and she in her turn was astonished at Molly's bonnet and cloak. "'Where are you going so early, child? The fog hasn't cleared away yet.' "'I thought you would go and meet Cynthia, and I wanted to go with you.' "'She will be here in half an hour, and dear Papa has told the gardener to take the wheelbarrow down for her luggage. I'm not sure if he has not gone himself.' "'Then are you not going?' asked Molly, with a good deal of disappointment. "'No, certainly not. She will be here almost directly. And besides, I don't like to expose my feelings to every passer-by in High Street. You forget I have not seen her for two years, and I hate scenes in the market-place.' She settled herself to her work again and Molly, after some consideration, gave up her own going and employed herself in looking out of the downstairs window which commanded the approach from the town. "'Here she is—here she is!' she cried out at last. Her father was walking by the side of a tall young lady. William the gardener was wheeling along a great cargo of baggage. Molly flew to the front door, and had it wide open to admit the newcomer some time before she arrived. "'Well, here she is. Molly, this is Cynthia—Cynthia, Molly. You're to be sisters, you know." Molly saw the beautiful tall swaying figure against the light of the open door but could not see any of the features that were for the moment in shadow. A sudden gush of shyness had come over her just at the instant and quenched the embrace she would have given a moment before. But Cynthia took her in her arms and kissed her on both cheeks. "'Here's Mama,' she said looking beyond molly onto the stairs where mrs gibson stood wrapped up in a shawl and shivering in the cold she ran past molly and mr gibson who rather averted their eyes from this first greeting between mother and child mrs gibson said why how you have grown darling you look quite a woman and so i am said cynthia i was before i went away i've hardly grown since except it is always to be hoped in wisdom yes That we will hope," said Mrs. Gibson, in rather a meaning way. Indeed there were evidently hidden allusions in their seemingly commonplace speeches. When they all came into the full light and repose of the drawing-room, Molly was absorbed in the contemplation of Cynthia's beauty. Perhaps her features were not regular, but the changes in her expressive countenance gave one no time to think of that. Her smile was perfect, her pouting charming, the play of the face was in the mouth. Her eyes were beautifully shaped, but their expression hardly seemed to vary. In coloring she was not unlike her mother, only she had not so much of the red-haired tints in her complexion, and her long-shaped serious gray eyes were fringed with dark lashes instead of her mother's insipid flaxen ones. Molly fell in love with her, so to speak, on the instant. She sat there warming her feet and hands as much at her ease as if she had been there all her life not particularly attending to her mother, who all the time was studying either her or her dress, measuring Molly and Mr. Gibson with grave observant looks, as if guessing how she should like them. "'There's hot breakfast ready for you in the dining-room, when you are ready for it,' said Mr. Gibson. "'I'm sure you must want it after your night journey.' He looked round at his wife, at Cynthia's mother, but she did not seem inclined to leave the warm room again. "'Molly will take you to your room, darling.' said she. It is near hers, and she has got her things to take off. I'll come and sit in the dining-room while you are having your breakfast, but I really am afraid of the cold now." Cynthia rose and followed Molly upstairs. "'I'm so sorry there isn't a fire for you,' said Molly. "'But—I suppose it wasn't ordered—and of course I don't give any orders. Here's some hot water, though.' "'Stop a minute,' said Cynthia getting hold of both Molly's hands and looking steadily into her face, but in such a manner that she did not dislike the inspection. "'I think I shall like you. I am so glad. I was afraid I should not. We are all in a very awkward position together, aren't we? I like your father's looks, though.' Molly could not help smiling at the way this was said. Cynthia replied to her smile. "'Ah, you may laugh, but I don't know that I am easy to get on with. Mama and I didn't suit when we were last together. But perhaps we are each of us wiser now. Now please leave me alone for a quarter of an hour. I don't want anything more." Marley went into her own room, waiting to show Cynthia down to the dining-room. Not that in the moderate-sized house there was any difficulty in finding the way. A very little trouble in conjecturing would enable a stranger to discover any room. But Cynthia had so captivated Molly that she wanted to devote herself to the newcomer's service. Ever since she had heard of the probability of her having a sister, she called her a sister, but whether it was a Scotch sister or a sister à la mode de Bretagne would have puzzled most people. Molly had allowed her fancy to dwell much on the idea of Cynthia's coming, and in the short time since they had met Cynthia's unconscious power of fascination had been exercised upon her. Some people have this power. Of course its effects are only manifested in the susceptible. A schoolgirl may be found in every school who attracts and influences all the others, not by her virtues, nor her beauty, nor her sweetness, nor her cleverness, but by something that can neither be described nor reasoned upon. It is the something alluded to in the old lines. Love me not for comely grace, for my pleasing eye and face. No, nor for my constant heart, For these may change and turn to ill, and thus true love may sever. But love me on and know not why, so hast thou the same reason still to dote upon me ever. A woman will have this charm not only over men but over her own sex. It cannot be defined. Or rather it is so delicate a mixture of many gifts and qualities that it is impossible to decide on the proportions of each. Perhaps it is incompatible with very high principle, as its essence seems to consist in the most exquisite power of adaptation to varying people and still more various moods, being all things to all men. At any rate, Molly might soon have been aware that Cynthia was not remarkable for unflinching morality, but the glamour thrown over her would have prevented Molly from any attempt at penetrating into and judging her companion's character, even had such processes been the least in accordance with her own disposition. Cynthia was very beautiful, and was so well aware of this fact that she had forgotten to care about it. No one with such loveliness ever appeared so little conscious of it. Molly would watch her perpetually as she moved about the room with the free stately step of some wild animal of the forest, moving almost as it were to the continual sound of music. Her dress, too, though now to our ideas it would be considered ugly and disfiguring, was suited to her complexion and figure and the fashion of it subdued within due bounds by her exquisite taste. It was inexpensive enough, and the changes in it were but few. Mrs. Gibson professed herself shocked to find that Cynthia had but four gowns when she might have stocked herself so well and brought over so many useful French patterns, if she had but patiently waited for her mother's answer to the letter which she had sent announcing her return by the opportunity Madame had found for her. Molly was hurt for Cynthia at all these speeches. She thought that they implied that the pleasure which her mother felt in seeing her a fortnight sooner after her two years' absence was inferior to that which she would have received from a bundle of silver-paper patterns. But Cynthia took no apparent notice of the frequent recurrence of these small complaints. Indeed she received much of what her mother said with a kind of complete indifference that made Mrs. Gibson hold her rather in awe. And she was much more communicative to Molly than to her own child. With regard to dress, however, Cynthia soon showed that she was her mother's own daughter in the manner in which she could use her deft and nimble fingers. She was a capital workwoman, and unlike Molly, who excelled in plain sewing but had no notion of dressmaking or millinery, she could repeat the fashions she had only seen in passing along the streets of Boulogne, with one or two pretty rapid movements of her hands as she turned and twisted the ribbons and gauze her mother furnished her with. So she refurbished Mrs. Gibson's wardrobe doing it all in a sort of contemptuous manner, the source of which Molly could not quite make out. Day after day the course of these small frivolities was broken in upon by the news Mr. Gibson brought of Mrs. Hamley's nearer approach to death. Molly, very often sitting by Cynthia and surrounded by ribbon and wire and net, heard the bulletins like the toll of a funeral bell at a marriage feast. Her father sympathized with her. It was the loss of dear friend to him too, but he was so accustomed to death that it seemed to him but as it was, the natural end of all things human. To Molly the death of someone she had known so well and loved so much was a sad and gloomy phenomenon. She loathed the small vanities with which she was surrounded, and would wander out into the frosty garden and pace the walk, which was both sheltered and concealed by evergreens. At length—and yet it was not so long, not a fortnight since Molly had left the hall—the end came. Mrs. Hamley had sunk out of life as gradually as she had sunk out of consciousness and her place in this world. The quiet waves closed over her, and her place knew her no more. "'They all sent their love to you, Molly,' said her father. "'Roger said he knew how you would feel it.' Mr. Gibson had come in very late, and was having a solitary dinner in the dining-room. Molly was sitting near to him to keep him company. Cynthia and her mother were upstairs. The latter was trying on a headdress which Cynthia had made for her. Molly remained downstairs after her father had gone out afresh on his final round among his town patients. The fire was growing very low, and the lights were waning. Cynthia came softly in, and taking Molly's listless hand that hung down by her side, sat at her feet on the rug, chafing her chilly fingers without speaking. The tender action thawed the tears that had been gathering heavily at Molly's heart, and they came dropping down her cheeks. You loved her dearly, did you not, Molly? Yes, sobbed Molly, and then there was a silence. Had you known her long? No, not a year, but I had seen a great deal of her. I was almost like a daughter to her. She said so. Yet I never bid her good-bye or anything. Her mind became weak and confused. She had only sons, I think. No, only Mr. Osborne and Mr. Roger Hamley. She had a daughter once—Fanny. Sometimes in her illness she used to call me Fanny." The two girls were silent for some time, both gazing into the fire. Cynthia spoke first. "'I wish I could love people as you do, Molly.' "'Don't you?' said the other in surprise. No. A good number of people love me, I believe, or at least they think they do, but I never seem to care much for any one. I do believe I love you, little Molly, whom I have only known for ten days, better than any one." "'Not than your mother,' said Molly, in grave astonishment. "'Yes, than my mother,' replied Cynthia, half smiling. "'It's very shocking, I dare say, but it is so. Now don't go and condemn me. I don't think love for one's mother quite comes by nature. And remember how much I have been separated from mine. I loved my father, if you will," she continued, with the force of truth in her tone, and then she stopped. But he died when I was quite a little thing, and no one believes that I remember him. I heard Mamma say to a caller not a fortnight after his funeral, Oh no! Cynthia is too young, she has quite forgotten him. And I bit my lips to keep from crying out, Papa, Papa, have I?" But it's of no use. Well then, mamma had to go out as a governess. She couldn't help it, poor thing. But she didn't much care for parting with me. I was a trouble, I dare say. So I was sent to school at four years old. First one school and then another. And in the holidays mamma went to stay at grand houses and I was generally left with the schoolmistresses. Once I went to the towers, and Mamma lectured me continually, and yet I was very naughty, I believe, and so I never went again, and I was very glad of it, for it was a horrid place." That it was," said Molly, who remembered her own day of tribulation there. And once I went to London to stay with my uncle Kirkpatrick. He is a lawyer and getting on now, but then he was poor enough and had six or seven children, It was winter time, and we were all shut up in a small house in Doughty Street. But after all, that wasn't so bad. But then you lived with your mother when she began school at Ashcombe. Mr. Preston told me that when I stayed that day at the manor-house." "'What did he tell you?' asked Cynthia, almost fiercely. "'Nothing but that. Oh, yes, he praised your beauty, and wanted me to tell you what he had said.' "'I should have hated you if you had.' said Cynthia. Of course I never thought of doing such a thing," replied Molly. I didn't like him, and Lady Harriet spoke of him the next day as if he wasn't a person to be liked. Cynthia was quite silent. At length she said, "'I wish I was good.'" "'So do I,' said Molly simply. She was thinking again of Mrs. Hamley. Only the actions of the just smell sweet and blossom in the dust. And goodness just then seemed to her to be the only enduring thing in the world. "'Nonsense, Molly! You are good. At least if you're not good, what am I? There's a rule of three-sum for you to do. But it's no use talking. I am not good, and I never shall be now. Perhaps I might be a heroine still, but I shall never be a good woman, I know.' Do you think it easier to be a heroine?" Yes, as far as one knows of heroines from history. I'm capable of a great jerk, a great effort, and then a relaxation. But steady everyday goodness is just beyond me. I must be a moral kangaroo." Molly could not follow Cynthia's ideas. She could not distract herself from the thoughts of the sorrowing group at the hall. How I should like to see them all! And yet one can do nothing at such a time. Papa says the funeral is to be on Tuesday, and that after that Mr. Roger Hamley is to go back to Cambridge. It will seem as if nothing had happened. I wonder how the squire and Mr. Osborne Hamley will get on together." He is the eldest son, is he not? Why shouldn't he and his father get on well together? Oh, I don't know—that is to say, I do know, but I think I ought not to tell. Don't be so pedantically truthful, Molly. Besides, your manner shows when you speak truth and when you speak falsehood without troubling yourself to use words. I knew exactly what your I don't know meant. I never consider myself bound to be truthful, so I beg we may be on equal terms." Cynthia might well say she did not consider herself bound to be truthful. She literally said what came uppermost without caring very much whether it was accurate or not. But there was no ill-nature and in a general way no attempt at procuring any advantage for herself in all her deviations. And there was often such a latent sense of fun in them that Molly could not help being amused with them in fact, though she condemned them in theory. Cynthia's playfulness of manner glossed such failings over with a kind of charm, and yet at times she was so soft and sympathetic that Molly could not resist her, even when she affirmed the most startling things. The little account she made of her own beauty pleased Mr. Gibson extremely, and her pretty deference to him won his heart. She was restless, too, till she had attacked Molly's dress after she had remodelled her mother's. "'Now for you, sweet one,' said she as she began upon one of Molly's gowns. "'I've been working as a connoisseur until now—now I begin as amateur.' She brought down her pretty artificial flowers, plucked out of her own best bonnet to put into Molly's saying they would suit her complexion, and that a knot of ribbons would do well enough for her. All the time she worked she sang. She had a sweet voice in singing as well as in speaking, and used to run up and down her gay French chanson without any difficulty—so flexible in the art was she. Yet she did not seem to care for music. She rarely touched the piano, on which Molly practiced with daily conscientiousness. Cynthia was always willing to answer questions about her previous life though after the first she rarely alluded to it of herself. But she was a most sympathetic listener to all Molly's innocent confidences of joys and sorrows, sympathizing even to the extent of wondering how she could endure Mr. Gibson's second marriage, and why she did not take some active steps of rebellion. In spite of all this agreeable and pungent variety of companionship at home, Molly yearned after the Hamleys. If there had been a woman in that family she would probably have received many little notes, and heard numerous details which were now lost to her, or summed up in condensed accounts of her father's visits at the hall, which since his dear patient was dead, were only occasional. Yes, the squire is a good deal changed, but he's better than he was. There's an unspoken estrangement between him and Osborne—one can see it in the silence and constraint of their manners—but outwardly they are friendly—civil, at any rate. The squire will always respect Osborne as his heir, and the future representative of the family. "'Osborne doesn't look well. He says he wants change. I think he's weary of the domestic dullness or domestic dissension. But he feels his mother's death acutely. It's a wonder that he and his father are not drawn together by their common loss. Roger's away at Cambridge, too—examination for the mathematical tripos. Altogether the aspect of both people and place is changed. It is but natural." Such is perhaps the summing up of the news of the Hamleys as contained in many bulletins. They always ended in some kind message to Molly. Mrs. Gibson generally said, as a comment upon her husband's account of Osborne's melancholy, "'My dear, why don't you ask him to dinner here? A little quiet dinner, you know. Cook is quite up to it and we would all of us wear blacks and lilacs. He wouldn't consider that his gaiety." Mr. Gibson took no more notice of these suggestions than by shaking his head. He had grown accustomed to his wife by this time, and regarded silence on his own part as a great preservative against long inconsequential arguments. But every time that Mrs. Gibson was struck by Cynthia's beauty, she thought it more and more advisable that Mr. Osborne Hamley should be cheered up by a little quiet dinner-party. As yet no one but the ladies of Hollingford and Mr. Ashton the vicar—that hopeless and impracticable old bachelor—had seen Cynthia. And what was the good of having a lovely daughter if there were none but old women to admire her? Cynthia herself appeared extremely indifferent upon the subject, and took very little notice of her mother's constant talk about the gaieties that were possible and the gaieties that were impossible in Hollingford. She exerted herself just as much to charm the two Miss Brownings as she would have done to delight Osborne Hamley or any other young heir. That is to say, she used no exertion, but simply followed her own nature, which was to attract every one of those she was thrown amongst. The exertion seemed rather to be to refrain from doing so, and to protest, as she often did, by slight words and expressive looks against her mother's words and humours, alike against her folly and her caresses. Molly was almost sorry for Mrs. Gibson, who seemed so unable to gain influence over her child. One day Cynthia read Molly's thought. "'I'm not good, and I told you so. Somehow I cannot forgive her for her neglect of me as a child when I would have clung to her. Besides, I hardly ever heard from her when I was at school. And I know she put a stop to my coming over to her wedding. I saw the letter she wrote to Madame Lefebvre. A child should be brought up with its parents, if it is to think them infallible when it grows up." "'But though it may know that there must be faults,' replied Molly, "'it ought to cover them over and try to forget their existence.' "'It ought! But don't you see I have grown up outside the pale of duty and oughts. Love me as I am, sweet one, for I shall never be better.'" End of chapter 19.